All right, welcome to Retro Rocket Entertainment, Mr. Lobo. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing excellent. All systems go. I'm glad to be here on Retro Rocket Entertainment. I wanted to uh, talk to you about not only your show and your career, but also it's uh, Turkey Month, and your theme has always been they're not bad movies, they're just misunderstood. And yes. so this whole month we've been doing specials on either movies that bombed or movies that have been completely lost in the shuffle or misunderstood. Yes. And um, so I guess, children of cinema. Yes. Um, I guess the first place we'll start off is the creation of your show. Sure. How did That's that? How did you come up? So is Mr. Lobo like an Earth Two version of? Like the... We have a <laughs> we have a crisis of infinite Lobos. Is what we have. <laughs> uh, there are there are many different Mr. Lobos. No one is really sure which origin is the correct one, uh, but. The Mr. Lobo of Cinema Insomnia is a slightly amplified version of the real Mr. Lobo, and my ex-wife says that it is all of my most annoying traits uh, exaggerated, although I like to think of it as all of my most annoying traits finally free. Which actually makes it extremely funny. Of all the horror host shows that I've seen, I think I think the aspect that you've taken with yours, um, it feels more like skit comedy, almost improv where your focus is not isn't on puns. It feels like you're kind of developing as you go, and but the ideas are, are pretty set out. Do you write a script, or do you kind of wing it? I, I do write. Uh, there is a lot of writing in the show. I, I watch the film around, about four times, and I, I write a script, but I also leave uh, gaps in the script intentionally to allow for uh, uh, improv and spontaneous uh, aspects. Because when the camera is rolling and, uh, you know, maybe the director's laughing or maybe something's happening or, or maybe I'm thinking about that uh, moment in the movie and I get one more idea, uh, I like to leave that door open. But uh, I, I do have a structure, so if I don't come up with anything, I've got material, but I, I, do, I do like to leave it open. And we have done a few episodes where they've been 50-50 where... I, I write. I write half. I get myself to the halfway point, and then I just. I just uh, freeform the, the second half. And and we've done it. We've done it both both directions. So uh, you know, I think a lot of times the movie will speak to me. I'll watch the movie, and and depending on how inspired I am, uh, that kind of dictates how the the, the raps. Uh, I call them raps. It's short for wraparounds. I, I used to work at a TV ABC TV station. And the sportscaster always called him rap, so I kind of, I kind of, I kind of grabbed onto that when I started doing uh, my show. Uh, but uh, I don't know if that did that answer your question. I'm not sure if I. Answered no, it's okay. Um, so before the show existed, were you a performer? Were you an actor or a comedian? Uh, yeah, and yes. Getting a little bit of feedback. Uh, yeah, I was an actor uh, and a, and a comedian. More so a writer, uh, I was involved in a local comedy troupe called the Mo Better Man Show in Sacramento, which was a, a spoof of uh, the David Letterman show, where it was, a, it, was a, it was a talk show format, and we would have fake guests, and uh, that was, uh, I did that for seven years. I did radio theater at UC Davis for nine years, uh, so a lot of kind of skits, uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of satire. I, I did underground comics and wrote sort of like subversive kind of Mad Magazine type of uh, National Lampoon kind of stuff. 
Uh, and uh, so that I always, there was always an aspect of wanting to do sort of uh, parody or uh, satire with 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 this. And when when I had got the opportunity, I guess we were talking earlier about how the show got started. Uh, I started at an ABC station in Sacramento, California. They had a movie at 3 a.m. that uh, ran 20 minutes short every Saturday night. And I, I walked into the general manager's office and I said, you know, I can solve your problem. Doing a pity of a, of a movie host, that was really kind of how I originally approached it as, as, a, as a spoof of a movie host. And uh, um, what was bizarre about it is that after I had done it for a while and I started gaining my own audience, uh, especially young people who, who, who didn't remember Creature Features or the show or Elvira or the shows that I grew up with, um, I suddenly had a turn of, wow, I, I'm really doing this. I'm kind of doing this for real, so I better start acting like it. And that's something, um, I think my generation, anybody basically under like 35, we kind of missed out on the horror host. I think at most we had Joe Bob Briggs on Monster Vision and then a little bit of Elvira, but I grew up in Indiana, so we didn't get either one of those until wow. like the mid-90s. I think all we got was TNT's Monster Vision. So like for my generation, it's a whole new thing. The problem is discovering it. And horror hosts, those kind of shows have kind of, they're, under, they're underground shows for the most part. They're like a lot of public domain or kind of cable access, not cable access, uh, you know, like the, the small cable TV stations like MeTV. That's the only way we can really get those nowadays. Is that kind of a challenge to get your show out there and get it to a new generation? It, it, is, a, it is a challenge uh, to get it to uh, a new generation, which it seems, it, it seems to be, at least for me, it seems to be happening. A lot of the other horror hosts I talk to, um, they're very frustrated because they don't really see a younger generation getting into it. Uh, I've been very fortunate to where I've seen my audience get younger. I used to get crayon drawings from 49-year-olds. <laughs> And now I'm getting finally getting crayon drawings from nine-year-olds. So I, I guess they're just having children and, and raising them on it. But uh, I've, I've actually been doing this long enough now. We're, we're, we're almost 15 years now with this. Uh, I've, I've been doing it long enough where I've got some second-generation fans, where I've got mothers who are showing it to their daughters and fathers who are showing it to their kids and, and uh, you know, young kids who are stumbling on it. Uh, on their own. So it is, it is, that's really exciting for me because that's the only way it's going to get anywhere or, or at least get back to the glory days um, that, it, that it once was, uh, it is if the younger people are getting into it. And I, and I do think in the, in the nineties, we did have mystery science theater, which I think uh, it, it kind of qualifies of, of a, that sort of presentation where uh, the host part of it is really why you're watching. And there's this kind of uh, participation, implied participation on the part of the audience. And uh, I think that uh, I think I think the mystery science kept the home fires burning for this kind of show uh, during that that bleak period where there there wasn't any any uh, any any major players in the horror host world. Now, I know with a lot of these shows, Mystery Science Theater being the exception, a lot of these shows have to share the same catalog, mostly public domain films. So in order to separate yourself from the pack, to make it unique and gather your own audience, it, it usually relies solely on the wraparounds, the horror host part, instead of just the movie, because I, I can't imagine how many 
different hosts have had to use like Night, uh, Night Living Dead, you know, Gigantus, the same catalog. Is it kind of frustrating that you can't get certain movies? Uh, it is. It is frustrating. I mean, I, I have had certain opportunities where I've had uh, windows of being able to use different movies. Um, you know, I've been with certain distributors and certain satellite networks and certain uh, certain arrangements where they had a film library that I could work with. Uh, in the in-between times, and again, we've had to kind of uh, reinvent the show many times because, uh, you know, stations get bought out and networks go under and uh, management changes and they change their programming. And, you know, so and I've been on every kind of TV you can think of. And uh, so I've, I've been in times where, you know, I, there was a film library and we had licensed stuff and we showed Gigantic versus, the, uh, I mean, uh, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster or whatever. And then there have been times where I got to I gotta go with uh, the, um, the tried and true uh, public domain uh, stuff. And, and I've actually done arrangements, too, where I've literally called distributors up and called directors up and said, hey, you know, I know your film is in public domain, but... But uh, can we use it? Um, even in the case of Night of the Living Dead, uh, you know, which is used very liberally by horror hosts, the people who made that film did not intend it to be public domain. It was a clerical error. Um, the distributor changed the name of the film, and they didn't reinsert the copyright information. So instead of Night of the Flesh Eaters or Night of the Anubis, it became Night of the Living Dead, which sold a lot more tickets at the drive-in, but it ended up screwing everyone who worked hard on that movie. And so I have to see those people at every convention. So I, I, I did go to uh, uh, Joe, uh, John Russo and Russell Spainer and say, you know, is this okay that I'm running your film? You know, so I did get there, did get the permission of the producer, two of the producers of Night of the Living Dead. I try to do that if I can, if I know they're alive. In a lot of cases, the people who make the movies, the people who make the movies uh, uh, are not around anymore. And then, or the, the companies that own them are defunct or what have you. And of course, that's a lot of the reason why a lot of these films are in the public domain to begin with. Did you ever have one of the movies you kind of poked fun at go horribly wrong? Like you end up meeting someone involved with the movie and they were upset with it? Like they're mad and then they like you know uh let me off the hook 
But I've been very fortunate to where I, I think people know that I really love these movies. And uh, even when uh, that I'm not really making fun of them, I'm having fun with them, which I think is a different thing. Right. There, and, there uh, is a generation where we've kind of treated it. We've taken the Mystery Science Theater concept or the Elvira concept to the nth degree where we're almost trolling the movie instead of having fun with it or lightly poking fun with it like it's a friend. It's kind of like a flat-out slap in the face now. And you've always taken that tone, I've noticed in your shows, where it's just kind of like a slight teasing. Like the movie's... Like the way you treat a little brother. Just, you, don't, you don't mean any harm. You're just kind of poking fun. And when it's all said and done, you had a good time. Well, I mean, in a, in a certain group, validating it by showing it. So, you know, you can't hold your nose and say, you know, or whatever. If this milk is sour. Drink it. You know, it's just sort of, you know, at a certain point, you're, you're, you're cutting your nose off to bite your face, you know. So I, I, I think that, you know, uh, something has to be important enough to make fun of. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, humor is a weapon and you have to be really careful. You know, you, you don't, you don't want to, uh, you know, shoot fish in a barrel. That, 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 that makes the person with the gun look like a jerk, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to a certain degree, you, you can make yourself look bad by, uh, you know, just going crazy on a on an unarmed opponent, and a lot a lot of these a lot a lot of these movies have already got both arms tied behind their back, and they were somebody's labor of love. I think the other aspect of it is that um, you know every movie is somebody's favorite movie, just as every movie is somebody's least favorite movie, and you can have superb acting and stellar special effects and and boring, and and I could not be interested, um, and I. You know, it's, it's very, it's very um, trendy and it's very um, uh, fashionable to, you know, kind of break the kneecaps of somebody else's uh, work, uh, especially movies. Now, look, I'm above this, you know, and all the 50 worst movies of all time. Oh, what were they thinking? It was daytime and it was nighttime and it was daytime again. And all the cardboard, the cardboard tombstone. Whoops, look at that. And, you know, it's like, you know, again, it's like, well, where, where, where's your movie? What did you do? Right. You know, that's so great. And that's the, 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 the one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is the 50 worst movies of all time are not those movies. These movies have robots and ninjas and things that are interesting and fun. You know, the, the Lifetime movie about, you know, uh, uh, the Disease of the Week movie with Meredith Baxter Burney, you know, uh, on Lifetime, or, you know, the romantic comedy with Ashton Kutcher from five years ago that nobody remembers the name of. You know, these are the worst movies of all time because they're not even worth talking about, you know. And, and so it's, I think it's, it's kind of like a, you know, it's one of those things where I think it's a safety, where you feel safe, where it's like, you know, you're, you're not going to tell people you like it because that kind of, that kind of makes you vulnerable, you know? So it's much easier to to come out and say, this was stupid, or oh gosh, the acting was so dumb, and oh boy, that robot sure looks fake. And it's a way there that you can actually watch this movie and talk about it with your friends, but then you've got this armor that you're wearing that, you know, you're completely impervious to any kind of criticism or, or, or your or some sort of backlash to that to that. Yeah, and that's I, how I, yeah, that's that's the way I've always been. Is I just like a movie because I like a movie, and I always thought it was weird growing up, especially when I hit college. 
that I would like certain movies and then you would never hear the end of it. And I was just like, it's okay that you guys don't like it, but I like it. Uh, the, the backlash I got from Waterworld never seemed to end. I, that's one of those movies that I defend. I mean, I think it's, you ever, you know how some movies, they are so expensive. They're so big that yeah. it, it, they're just going to topple just based on that alone. It has nothing to do with the plot. Uh, you know, if that if Waterworld was a movie from Roger Corman that cost ten million dollars, people would be holding it up on a pedestal as like a cult film that uh, people yeah. need to watch. But because it cost one hundred fifty million dollars, we all of a sudden decide, well, this needs to be the greatest movie of all time. It's weird how we have now decided that money is the reason why a movie should be good or bad, and that's mm-hmm. bizarre. It's bizarre, and you know, Waterworld people were ready to make that movie a flop before it even came out. Uh, when Entertainment Tonight was showing, uh, was doing reports about the making of that movie, and they, you know, oh, uh-oh, another set sunk into the ocean. What is Kevin Costner doing? And they're, all, they're just throwing in good money after bad. What a bunch of morons. I mean, that's exactly how the cover, the news coverage of that movie was. And it was tough. And, you know, I mean, if they didn't, I mean, you know, sometimes you get, you get uh, uh, crucified in the press before your movie even comes out, and uh, that's the case. That is one of the cases there with, with Waterworld. Uh, you know, and, I, and, and to be honest, you know, I, I love post-apocalyptic movies, and we throw Waterworld on once in a while, and it's not that bad of a movie. It's not that great, no. you know, but it's 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 it, it delivers everything it promises, and you know, it's just as good as that third Mad Max movie, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I, I think uh, I think I'm on your side with it. Yeah, and I even think uh, Postman, while it's a completely different feel to Waterworld, uh, I mean, I enjoy that movie, though it might have been poor decision-making making it two years after Waterworld, making two post-apocalyptic movies that were extremely expensive, like back-to-back, might have not have been the best financial decision. Yeah, you know, I think Kevin Costner at some point decided he wanted Mel Gibson's career, and he was just determined to make it happen. And then he went, well, if I can't have Mel Gibson's career, maybe I can have Don Johnson's career. <laughs> uh, and while we're on misunderstood movies or movies that people really yes. just jump on the negative bandwagon, what are some of the movies that you found that it's got a huge uh, uh, like anti-kind of negative response to it that you don't understand why, like something that you see as a quality film or at least something about it's very special that no one yeah. else seems to notice. I, I think there are quite a few of those. Uh, and, you know, of course, I, I, on the spot right now, I, you know, some, a, a film that I think is actually ha, has, has, ha, is having its day. God, they just couldn't spit, spit it out. Every dog has its day, they say. Uh, you know, and some of these movies are like a fine line where people finally come around to them. And I've seen, that with a lot of movies, and, and most recently, that movie has been Halloween 3. Um, I, I love Halloween 3. I think Halloween 3 is a good movie, and it's better than most of the movies in that uh, uh, series, and I used to take, have to take the slings and arrows of people, oh, God, God Halloween 3, Season of the Witch with the mask that, you know, explode with bugs and, you know, the, all that stuff, and, uh, uh, and, and, and I, you know, it's like you know, John Carpenter did not see any longevity in the Michael Myers story. They wanted to do a anthology from Go. He was heartbroken when the second movie ended up also being about Michael Myers. Uh, Tommy Lee Wallace was supposed to direct Halloween 3 as Halloween 2, but it just didn't happen that way. You know, 
and they were going to do a different Halloween-themed movie every year, and, and they were going to do it like a creep show, like an anthology kind of thing, only with, like I said, one movie every year with a different Halloween theme, and I think that would have been great. I would have liked to have seen how that happened, and we never got that. And I think uh, Halloween 3, if you look at what was happening in, in film, you know, the sort of funner uh, science fiction kind of infused, fantasy-infused horror like Phantasm, I think... Um, Halloween 3 fits right in there. I think it's got a good story. It's got good acting. I think Tom Atkins is great in it. I think Stacey Nelson is great in it. I think that the, the story is, is fun and really good. And I think that um, the uh, I think that the, the Michael Myers fans need to just let it go. And I think that, that they should, you know, we only have four Phantasm movies. I think they should do a hostage trade where we can just give Phantasm to give Phantasm Halloween three, retitle the film Phantasm six five thousand, and and move on, and then everyone can like that movie because it's, it it will be more of what they it would expect. Yeah, I remember after H two O they were talking about doing the anthology concept again, but uh, they went back to Michael Myers, and it's just. He's a great villain, but he was more of a one or two time only kind of thing, and they're really exhausted to the point where we don't even want to see it anymore. No, I, I, at least I feel that way, you know. And again, I understand it's like you've got you've got Pepsi and Coke, and you've got Paramount Universal, or you know whoever whoever owns what, and they're always looking at what the other person's doing. They're like, oh, what? Look, there's another Friday the Thirteenth. Well, where's our guy? We should have another one out there too, you know. And, and that's how a lot of movies are made, and I understand that. You know, everyone's trying to protect their brand and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I, I think a lot of times, um, I think a lot of times you get uh, movies that have a really bad rap that I don't think it deserves. I think John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd's film Neighbors is a great movie. Yes. I don't know if you've ever seen that. That movie was not a bomb. That movie made a lot of money. And uh, uh, it, was, it had a modest budget, made a lot of money. But, you know, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi didn't, they wanted John Landis, and they didn't get John Landis. So they always felt that it wasn't as brilliant as it should have been. And they, they talked bad about it, and uh, the audience, uh, audiences talked bad about it, but everybody went to go see it and spent their money. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of them like that. You know, I don't think Howard the Duck is that bad, you know? Um, it, it's not that good. I love the comic book, and it's certainly nowhere near as, as great as the, as the worst issue of, of the comic is better than that movie. Is, is better than that movie, but that movie is not nearly as bad as everyone says it is. And it's got a few things that that I think if it came out, if it came out after Ninja Turtles, I think that movie would have been a hit. Yeah, I think a lot of it's like the hype again um, undermined that movie. It's George Lucas. It cost this much money. You know, it's that you know that was more important than hey, could we actually watch the movie and figure out what you know what's going on? And uh, the other one that I remember being like that is Starship Troopers. Very very yeah. expensive, delayed. So automatically, anytime a big movie gets pushed back, someone kind of notices. Oh, what's wrong here? And yeah. I've always seen it as a satire. Like, it's Absolutely. purposely bad. Like, he's kind yeah. of poking fun at war movies and kind of at the book itself, which insults some of the fans of the books, I guess. But I think uh, it's a fantastic movie. I do, too. Starship Troopers is a, is a fantastic movie. It is a satire, just as Robocop is a satire. I, I always get scared of people who think Robocop is a serious movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Robocop is hysterically funny. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and Starship Troopers is funny also. Do you want to know more? I mean, all that... 
You know, I mean, making fun of, 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 of propaganda and right-wing politics, and you know, there's so much happening in that movie that, that is, you know, I mean, Total Recall is a funny movie. I mean, you know, there's a lot of satire in Verhoeven's uh, movies, and I, I, you know, he doesn't, he, he doesn't really like American movies. He doesn't like science fiction. This is a, these are movies made by a guy who is uh, taking the genre and turning it inside out, and uh, they're hilarious. Yeah, I, I think they're very funny. He's one of those directors that's truly like misunderstood. A lot of his movies, like I don't understand why some people take Showgirls and Basic Instinct as if they're supposed to be serious. They're pulp. They're yeah. outrageous, and most of the movies are completely outrageous and lots of fun. And it's one of those uh, with directors that nobody really seems to like hone in on what he's trying to do, and so therefore a lot of negative feedback, you know. And then uh, the box office never really comes around, especially on like that last handful of movies like Hollow Man. Starship Troopers, Showgirls, they all tanked right. in, in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, a lot of times they're sacrificial lambs, you know, and, and, a, and a lot of times, and this is something that I'd like to talk to you about because I've never heard anyone talk about, is that we've been having a lot of movies with take backseats where everyone decides they love it, and then like two weeks later, everyone suddenly decides they hate it again. Uh, I think that, like the Godzilla movie that came out, uh, uh, everyone thought that was just like the second coming of God. And then like three weeks later, everyone's talking about how terrible it was. At least that's how, from my perspective, on my corner of the internet, that's how everything seemed like was happening. I think sometimes... What was your perspective? Well, it seems like a lot of times when people are talking about movies nowadays, it's based on Rotten Tomatoes. Not on what they think of it. They look at Rotten Tomatoes, they see the uh, percentages. You know, oh, this one's at 60%, this one's at 90%, this one's at 10%. Whatever, they, they judge a lot of movies based on that instead of their own unique experience. But in general, I think people have a, a sheep mentality. If enough people around you tell you that a movie's awesome, that can have two effects. Either you don't really put a lot of thought into it and you just go along with the pack, or you have a knee-jerk reaction to going, everybody loves it, well, screw it, I don't like this. And... Mm. Um, I'm one of those people, actually. I'm guilty of being like, oh, Braveheart. Everybody loves Braveheart. You know, it's not that great. I, and then all of a sudden, like, as time goes by, my brain decides, eh, it kind of stinks. Yeah. You know, it's, and sometimes yeah. it's like one of those instantaneous things where you watch a movie and you get really excited about it, but then you sit back and you start thinking about it. And you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Oh, that doesn't make sense either. And you start questioning things and it doesn't seem as good as it was before. Or your expectations can ruin a movie. I, when I was uh, 12, I saw Back to the Future 2, and that was like a special effects bonanza into a 12-year-old. you rather see the eye candy than the story. And then I right. saw the third one, and it's a Western, and I wasn't really used to Westerns. And yeah. it backed off the eye candy, and it was more about story and more about the characters, which is the perfect mm -hmm. way to end that trilogy. But at the time, I did not like it. But now looking back, three is better than two by a long shot in my mind. Maybe I need to go back to those because I, I I always like the second one just because the future was the most interesting to me. So, uh, but um, you know, uh, I did like I liked them all. I think the only thing I didn't like about the third one is the kind of uh, the sadness I felt at the end of it because I knew that even if they went forward, it would be a totally different movie. Yeah, it's like I don't want to see the adventures of the amazing super train with you know uh, Doc Brown. Family. That that to me is not. That's a that's a totally different movie. I'm not really that excited about. It. Uh, so you know, uh, that was the only thing about the Back to the Future. It, it was kind of the same as Star Wars, where 
uh, the, when the Star Wars trilogy ended, the original Star Wars trilogy, Return of the Jedi has a kind of a bittersweet ending because you know going forward it's going to be a different story. You know, they, they would have to bring in new characters and they would have to bring in another plot line and, and that those people, their relation, their dynamics have all changed. And, you know, even if you, at least that's how I feel with some movies where I feel like, well, it kind of has to end here because if it goes forward, it's a different movie. Yeah, it becomes more like a spinoff or a TV show that stayed, you know, stayed too long, like Happy Days after Richie left and it became about Scott Bayo, And you're like, it's just not the same show. You know, that's, that's yeah. why some franchises, they go on too long or I, we're, we seem to be obsessed with trilogies. And I don't understand what that is. Like every single movie now that's a hit, all of a sudden the director and writer are like, oh, it's a trilogy. Could you just, just like maybe leave it alone or just do them as sequels, like segments? Like Weath Weapon was never planned as a trilogy. They're just, you know, oh, we're just going to do another one. James Bond was never planned as a trilogy. They just did, they just kept making more stories. And it's weird to become obsessed with these bookends. Yeah, I, I guess they're just looking at the financial model of the, of the most successful uh, franchises. And I guess that, that that's, that's the existing business model is, is to at least go for go for a trilogy. Um, you know, and I guess it's a good way to, to, to guarantee yourself uh, two extra paychecks instead of one extra paycheck if you have a successful movie. Yeah, you know? and it's funny, uh, most... I, most trilogies don't end at trilogies. They say they are, but if the third one's a big enough hit, oh, here comes part four. I think, in fact, Back to the Future is the only one that is completely self-contained. There's no next trilogy or prequels, sequels, you know, spinoffs. It's it's self-contained. I mean, true, there's a cartoon, but so those three movies, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is self-contained. Like I said, you wouldn't want to see it go forward from that point. It wouldn't even be the same thing, uh, at least in my opinion. Uh, but again, they can always change the future, right? I guess that's the whole point of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, something that I wanted to bring up too is is prequels. Um, you know, prequels are really tough because I think that prequels represent. There's two tough things that are happening. One is there's this illusion that you're watching a first, second, and third of something uh, uh, when you're really watching. A fifth, uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth of something. Right. You know, when you go to that well, I don't care if it's a prequel or a sequel or a reimagining or a reboot. When you go to the same well with the same characters and the same story, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, I don't care who you are, how much money you have, that water just doesn't taste as sweet anymore. And it's just, it's not a bad thing. It's just how it is. You know, I mean, you can't expect to have this incredible, fresh impact uh, with something that's so established, you know. And, 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 and a lot of times, you know, again, you're usually working, usually working with less money, um, you know, although, although the newer ones, they, they seem to somehow find ways to give people more money. But I know with, like, Planet of the Apes and stuff like that, it was always like each one had half the budget of the one before, you know. Um, so it's, it's, uh, uh, it's an interesting aspect where, you know, we're, 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 we're trying to tell these stories that supposedly are first, you know, and, and, and I guess that's one way to get the, the series to end on a high note because you're ending it with the, with the original movies. But I, I also think that it's difficult to make an interesting story that we know how it ends or we know where it's going. Because usually the reason why people go to movies or read books or, 
read comics or whatever, they don't know what's going to happen next. And if they know the destiny of every character, uh, it's, it's hard hard to make it uh, hard to make it have a really uh, original impact. Right. It's and you're not really surprised when you know the goal. Uh, there, I mean, there's so, been, so many prequels now that uh, you know you get to the end, you're going, well, it may be a little surprise, but in general, I know what's going to happen. So you feel like you're kind of just spinning your wheels, like it's just filler. But the thing you said about the Planet of the Apes movies, which surprises me, is the budgets kept getting smaller, but for some reason, three and four are so strong that they kept that franchise alive, because I've always thought the second movie is the weakest of all the sequels, and I'm kind of surprised it even made it to three. Uh, you mean the one the one with the underground and the um, Charlton Heston uh, blowing up the world at the end? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it was almost the same plot. James Franciscus literally looks like he's supposed to be Charlton Heston, but Charlton Heston's yeah. in it, so it kind of confuses you a little bit, especially if you're a little kid. And, um, you know, it, I don't know. The ending's fine, but in general, I thought the movie kind of just like another one of those where it just spun its wheels. But then it got the three, and it really changed everything. And that kind That's of... Certain- Go ahead. That third one is amazing when they go back in time, and, and uh, yeah, that one is amazing. The and, third one. and that's the way you can keep a franchise going, is not repeating the same plot over and over and over with different cast members, is taking the concept and pushing it to that next level to keep it going by changing the whole world of what you were used to. I, I really hate this whole, uh, where they just supersize the first movie. You know, I'm really, that's something, I don't, you know, I hate is a strong word, because I don't, I don't, you know, I, I can't hate a movie, it's not subjective, you know, it's only as good as I am, but, um, you know, I, when I, like Ghostbusters 2, it's like, I like Ghostbusters 2, but I kind of feel like they're making the same movie, it's like they're starting up from nothing again, you know, we've got more slime now, there's a, there's, you know, there's a, another ancient god uh, who's, who's got a, 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 you know, who's, who's coming back in New York City. And there, instead of a giant marshmallow man, we've got another giant piece of Americana. We've got the Statue of Liberty. You know, I, I, just, I just feel like they just, they didn't take any risks. They just biggered everything. They just made everything bigger. They just, they just, they just took the exact same thing and did a retry. They did, a, they did like a curtain call. You know, they did a retry. You know, and and I, I I you know I love those guys and I love Ghostbusters and I you know and but I mean I think there were stories in the cartoon series that were better oh, than, the, than the story in the second movie and and uh, I just feel like uh, you know they did, they it's almost like they kind of felt like well we're not going to get three movies out of this so we're just going to give everybody what they want and uh, and at least that's kind of how I felt about it. and I don't know if that's true or not. I think it's all just your your own self-interpretation of it. Um, the one sequel that I think changed the concept, and, it, and they did it very early, and a lot of people rejected it, was Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Instead of repeating the same exact thing, they took the time travel kind of concept, but this time they're traveling between worlds, not time. You know, heaven and hell, and, you know, they had the robots come in. It's one of the craziest plots I've ever seen. It's not the same movie as the first one, and I think a lot of teenagers reject that because they want familiarity, and they took it. And, in fact, I think the second movie is a much better movie. The humor is better. The darker tone is crazy. I can't believe a studio would even back some of the stuff that they did. That, that rabbit causes nightmares. I think actually the, the second Bill and Ted movie is solid, and, I, and, and the first one is, is actually a little weak. It almost seems like a made-for-TV movie in some spots, uh, the first Bill and Ted. It's got some moments where uh, the scenes play a little too long, and 
and the jokes are uh, hit a little flat. And um, you know, I, I think the, I think the second movie is much is much funnier uh, than the first. But I, you know, I, it's interesting. Like I said, it, does, it is one of those movies that kind of it looks at killing a franchise. I think, but uh, I don't know why because I think it's a good movie. Um, so not just the big studio movies, but do you feel like a lot of the B and C movies? You know, like like you know, in the eighties there was like the Corman films, uh, New World. Uh, there was like the Italian cinema where they were like doing their own versions of a popular movie. Do you think a lot of those movies are now being appreciated for what they are? They're never meant to be grade A films. They were meant to be like drive-in kind of candy uh, of the moment movies. And do you think that our generation now is starting to embrace that that style of movie? and trying to make a movie that they would uh, reach into their pocket and 
and pull out cash money to see. Yeah, I think that's a big difference now. It seems like people are purposely making bad movies. Uh, for some reason, 50% of them seem to hop on the sci-fi channel. But the difference between the movies made now and the movies made then is I feel like there's almost like a cynical quality to it that they weren't guys who were like, hey, this is your first film, we're going to give you a million dollars, but we needed to make it look like five million dollars. They did the best they could, they got creative with the special effects, and sometimes they would add like a subversive quality to the script or like have it be a metaphor, an allegory for something much bigger. And I feel like they're yeah. missing from a lot of the movies now. They're, you know, the same kind of concept with the budget. Hey, we're giving you a million dollars, come up with a $5 million look, but they're not really trying with the special effects. They're not really trying with uh, some little tweaks to the script. It just seems to be generic, just generic entertainment, just to fill a cable station. streaming now and the video store then is there's so much content now that I feel I find myself and I'm, I'm probably not alone in this watching a movie and like within 10 minutes going you know I have a thousand other movies in my queue I can watch I can ditch that whereas the video store I would walk there you know peruse the yeah. shelves look at the artwork look at the description on the back and going this is what I'm going to pay for this is what I'm walking home with I'm going to spend my entire time with this movie no matter how good or bad I'm going to you know finish it and I think that's kind of lost on It's almost caused, like, a extreme short attention span with trying to make it through a movie now. Like, the minute something catches you up, you're like, ah, I'm just moving on, or it's going to be background noise. Uh, yeah, the other thing is that my, my, my good friend uh, Chuck uh, Francisco, uh, he is the cult movies director uh, at the uh, Colonial Theater in uh, Phoenixville. He has this term that he uses, which is so perfect, called uh, Netflix gridlock. Uh, and it's just basically you spend two hours trying to decide what what ninety minute movie you're trying to watch, you know. And and it's just like, okay, am I gonna like this one? Ah, uh, maybe not. Am I gonna like this one? Ah, uh, maybe not. Am I gonna like this one? Ah, uh, maybe not. 
And you and it's this thing where it's like you run out of time to watch a movie because you spend all your time <laughs> trying to decide what you're going to watch. I have to admit, so, hours of scroll, 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 scroll through my panel of movies available. And uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, I don't, I, you know, I think that that there is, there is, I think something missing that I think that the horror host provided. I think that the movie theater, uh, that, that the drive-in movie theater provided, and I think that the mom and pop video store provided is the concept of a curator. Uh, I think that a horror host is a curator, you know, this is Saturday night, we pulled this out of the vault, we're going to watch it no matter what, we're going to, we're, we're, you know, this is, this is, this is what we've got kids, and I think at a video store, you got mom and pop there, they've got these videos out there, they've got the picks of the week, they've got, you know, they might give you some advice as to what you're going to watch, or they, you know, there might be something new that just came in the store that week, and, and, and there's this, there's this concept of a curator and, and in a drive-in movie theater, they've got a, a selection of movies and you decide, you know, okay, it's going to be this double feature and, you know, we're going to be there sat that Saturday night and that's it. That's what we're going to watch. And, and I think that it was an occasion, you know, it was, it was an appointment. Uh, that, and I think that, uh, that is something that, you know, we're so used to sort of self-serve everything. Uh, that we we forgot how to be entertained by someone, um, and uh, I I do think that that is the aspect uh, that uh, you know the, the movie the movie theater the the, the the video store and the horror host all share is that is that you know somebody's there somebody cares and they're presenting it to you, uh, and uh, so I hopefully you know. Uh, People will start to miss that and and gravitate gravitate towards uh, you know those kind of situations where they could uh, allow themselves to uh, to ride it out. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times it's just overload, and we need you know we need people that are hosting movies that are coming to the screen and telling you about the film, whether it's AMC or it's a horror host or it's just a show. Uh, like I was talking to Will the Thrill Vajaro, and he was talking about how people have kind of moved on from coming to the theater, having someone introduce the movie, talk about it, entertain them, and then show the movie. And that's kind of lost in people because they kind of just want now, 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 now. I don't even want to go out of my house. I'm not going to walk to the theater even if it's across the street. And that kind of convenience also takes away, like, the group effort. A lot of movies I can't believe even become cult hits now because you don't have that kind of talk. You know, people get together, they come to the theater, they see this, and they talk about it later, and they recommend it to a friend, and it grows and grows and grows. Back when I was a kid, I mean, I'm a little bit before my time, movies would open up very small, but then through word of mouth, continue and grow and grow and be in the theaters for months on end, but now they're they're literally streaming and in theaters at the same time, which is a bizarre concept to me. Yeah, that is, that is a bizarre concept, and, and I, 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 that is another aspect that I think is missing, is the social aspect. Uh you know, uh, I something that I've been really struck with is the whole uh, uh, Alamo Drafthouse model, where they've got kind of a uh, and 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 Will Vajaro had Thrillville in uh, at the Park the Parkway Theater in Oakland, of course, where there's a similar deal where there was beer and wine and and food um, being served um, in the auditorium with the movie. And uh, you know, I've done a, quite a few shows with Alamo Drafthouse, and you know that experience is kind of like for me a rebirth of the drive-in experience almost where it's really just about the social aspect of all being together in this place and watching a movie. And they have a lot of different sort of curated programs where, you know, they've got uh, a show where people are, are texting and their texts appear up on their screen or, 
they're playing stuff off of a VCR, or they've got to show, uh, you know, and they're all some first-run movies. So everyone, you know, you've got one people in one theater watching Pacific Rim, and then you've got me in another theater showing them, uh, you know, uh, Mothra. You know, so that's that's the, that to me, uh, that m- model is very is very. Uh, it, I, I hope, and I'm seeing it replicated a lot. There's a place here in Pennsylvania called Movie Tavern. Um, there's a lot of these places springing up uh, where they're they're making a um, a social uh, um, a, a event going to a movie, and I, I think that uh, you know whether or not you go to one of these places or or maybe you have a movie night at your house or or maybe uh, there's a local um, independent theater like 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 the Colonial in Phoenixville or or the Craft in Sacramento uh, or or the Castro or whoever. Uh, you know, to go to places with your friends or, or again, just in your backyard and, and try to uh, create that, uh, that shared experience and, uh, and to also fill that role of, of a movie that's being presented versus watched. So I'm curious. I guess we should probably bring it back to the show. Um, sure. I am surprised that I, somehow I missed it. You left Sacramento and ended up in Pennsylvania. How'd that happen? Uh, well, it was a long, uh, long, long, you know, it's hard to hitchhike in a black suit <laughs> across the country. Uh, no, I, you know, it, it, to be off quite true and frank with you, things were really drying up for me in California. Um, my major flagship station at that time was KTEH in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they were bought out by KQED and my program, along with every other overnight program, was taken off the air. And eventually the whole channel was absorbed. Uh, and that was, that was uh, my big connection uh, in, in that region. Uh, uh, you know, my mentor, Bob Wilkins, died also uh, around that same time. Uh, I had a, a personal relationship also fall apart around that same time. Uh, and, uh, you know... WonderCon, which used to be my best convention of the year, I used to, I used to make thousands of WonderCon uh, on merch and stuff like that, and then I would do I would do panels and I would I would uh, uh, um, you know uh, be a special guest at WonderCon. They moved that day, and uh, I did one at Anaheim, and uh, uh, it was it was miserable. Ended up in the hole, uh, and that used to be my best show of the year was WonderCon. So my best convention in uh, California ended up being my worst convention. Uh, I didn't have a flagship station in that state where I was still being shown in other states uh, across the country via uh, AMG TV, uh, my syndicator. And uh, we were doing these shows, uh, traveling and doing conventions like Monster Bash and Blob Fest and Scream Fest and, and, and Monster Mania and, and these shows that were on the East Coast. And we were traveling five and six months out of the year, spending most of our time on the East Coast with East Coast horror fans. Uh, I made the Plan 9 movie, which was in Virginia. I worked on a movie called Taste the Blood of Frankenstein, which was also shot in Virginia. I made a movie called Midnight Show, uh, which we worked on some other projects that were in Pennsylvania. So I felt like uh, there was a lot more happening. I don't know if it's population density. Uh, or the colder winters, a lot of people staying inside and watching movies and TV, and, and <laughs> a little more, or people who are more B focused versus A focused, where they're more excited to 
see a B celebrity or a horror host uh, than, than they would an A celebrity or an A movie. Uh, I don't know what it was, but it, it just seemed like I was being drawn uh, to the East Coast. Uh, plus the fact the channel that had picked up, uh, I had a, a, a channel for connected television out of Washington, D.C., uh, pick up my show that had a beautiful studio um, that, that we made a bunch of shows in. So it just it just was just a mounting thing of 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 uh, they're just being more for me on, on uh, out here, and it's it's not a matter of I mean I miss California terribly, and I miss all my friends, and I miss my family, uh, but it just seemed like uh, there were the, the cost of living was cheaper, and the shows were better. And I've just been able to be more prolific out here. Yeah, I gotta say the uh, the cost of living there was so high. That's why I left. Oregon's just much cheaper, and like Pennsylvania, I mean, I'm assuming I I used to live in Indiana, so I really don't know Pennsylvania that well. But you know, Oregon's more prone to like the odd behavior. You know, stuff that's a little more non-mainstream. They have the same thing. They have theaters where they have someone come up and they present, they curate uh, cult movies and stuff like that. So Portland's that area is more my kind of feel. Plus, it's just more affordable. California, as, mu- as beautiful as it is and warm and sunny, uh, it, you pay for it. Yeah. yeah, you pay for it in blood a lot of times. Uh, but it, it's, uh, I like to travel, and hopefully I will be back in, in California for an event uh, soon. I'd, I'd like to uh, come out and, and do some of my favorite uh, shows out there and do some shows with some theaters, uh, you know, work on projects uh, with old friends. Uh, you know, uh, I uh, look forward to coming back to California for, for visits. And, and who knows, maybe coming back to live if, uh, if an opportunity should open up out there. So right now, where can we see your show? Okay. The best place to see my show, I mean, you can see it anytime you want, day or night, by going to cinemainsomnia.com and going to my watch episode uh, page, there's a viewer on there that uh, is a, a, has a, our Ustream channel, and you can watch on your phone, et cetera, et cetera. I'm also on Roku. Uh, I have There are about 10 episodes on Zombie TV, which is a Roku channel. There's another uh, Roku channel called uh, the Anomalies Network, uh, which you have to subscribe to, but it's free. And it's also on there. Uh, uh, and so those are two channels on the Roku box that you can watch it. You can and you can watch. Uh, uh, you can watch me on uh, Roku also on a channel called Zombie TV. They have about ten episodes uh, uh, up in their queue. Uh, I'm also on a channel called Anomalies.net that you have to subscribe uh, for that, but it's free. Uh, and uh, there will be other, many, many other outlets. I'm still on very a lot of over-the-air stations across the country, small independent stations who carry the show via AMG TV. So you're watch it on my website, watch it uh, on your Roku, or uh, move to somewhere where it's on over the air. <laughs> and you have DVDs of your show available as well as the uh, Halloween CD, correct? party like it's 1997 and have a DVD of my show. Uh, I have the uh, Hall, actually the Haunted House special, the Cinema Insomnia Haunted House special on DVD, and I also have a spooky uh, story and sound effects record called The Horrible Noises of Mr. Lobo's Very Bad Manner, and both of them you get two. 
two for one for the rest of this month. So if you buy the DVD, you'll get two DVDs. If you buy the CD, you get two CDs. And so you can keep one and give one away. Nice. And we're going to close out the show with a track from that CD. Before we do that, I just want to say thank you very much for sitting through this and dealing with the audio difficulties. But I think for the most part, we're good. Thank you. I thought it was a smooth show. You know, you were way above uh, the, the bar for, uh, for horror podcast. Thank you. I'm trying my best. I think uh, I think it's been a stumbling a little bit in the beginning. We're almost at our one-year anniversary, so I learned a lot as I went along, and uh, I think I'm getting to the point where I'm not like cringing when I listen to it back, like, oh, God, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Thank you very much, though. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, have me back on again. called it idiot camping poor man's camping poor man's poor man's poor man's spring break (laughs) yeah we remember we had this discussion uh senior year we're like everybody keeps going down to like fort lauderdale and uh you know what's the one in south carolina myrtle beach is that it myrtle beach yeah myrtle beach everybody just kept going to south carolina and florida and stuff like that and you know it was usually the kids who had money you know it was that that specific group usually of you know, the the popular kids, they would always go down there. I mean, it's not that we weren't unpopular, but we also didn't really like playing by those rules. Like, oh, well, that's all the cool kids are doing. Well, screw it. We're going to do our own thing. I prefer camping anyway. Yeah. Did you ever go to spring break? Like, that Ooh. that kind of spring break? That sort of thing never really interested me. No, I had no interest in getting drunk and going partying, but I feel like you went to Florida once with Dave. Am I wrong? No? Nope. Oh. I've never been to Florida. No, I've been there once, but technically it was just like the tip, and they were like, oh, Pensacola, here we go, we're gone. <laughs> no, but for us, uh, that year, that senior year, we just decided to go camping, even though the weather kind of sucks, but we wanted to kind of prove ourselves. We wanted to be mountain men. 
Yeah, it wasn't. We didn't even really tell anybody about this. It's not like something we planned or we told any like, hey, we're gonna go out there and be manly men. No, we just kind of said, hey, what are we doing? I don't know. Let's go camping. Okay. Screw it. <laughs> and it was so cold that first year. Holy crap! Remember, we had to pull picnic tables from two other sites to set up on ends in order for us to light a fire because it was so freaking windy. Yeah, oh, yeah. That, that first couple of days, the wind just cut right through. And, and I don't even know why. We never for one moment said, you know what, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe we should turn around. <laughs> if Dave was here right now, he'd, he'd be saying one thing. What? Where was my hot cocoa? Yeah. That his mom brought out. <laughs> what? We, did we lose that? No. We drank it all. He never got any of it. Oh, my God. I didn't even know that. <laughs> We didn't realize we were doing it. I remember for some reason, I think I was wandering around the woods and Robert was making a hobo stew or hobo something. Remember it was like, it was like meat and potatoes, but it was wrapped up in like foil and he put it in the fire. Hobo dinner. Hobo dinner. Yeah. That was gross, by the way. That mine was so overcooked. I don't know about you guys, but I remember being the last one there to get my food. (laughs) And by the time I got it, it was so rank, so nasty. I'm just like picking whatever top layer. That, you know it's bad when you can only eat a certain layer because the rest of it is ruined. I'm pretty sure I actually ended up eating some foil by accident. Uh, bad of the food is that bad, my stomach hurt. A little char clean you out. <laughs> yeah, they're good if you do it right. But I think that was our first attempt ever. So. Oh, okay. Wait, he, wait you just learned about that like by reading about it, or did someone else do that? I think Robert had done it one time or two, but none of that, the rest of us have done it, so... And I remember the one yeah. thing, that first year went better than the second year, but I remember the one thing that went really, really wrong is, A, we're freezing our ass off, and B, um, Robert was the last, did we spend, was it just me, you, and Dave the first night? No. No? Was Robert there the first night? I believe so. Well, I remember we were hiding from him, and we ran off into the woods, and we didn't know... You know, Dave, remember Dave was running away and he was kind of away from us and he slid and he grabbed onto a tree and pulled his ass back up. <laughs> and then we sat there doing sounds like, and then Dave goes, moo. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but we were walking around the next day and we could see Dave's, funny. we could see Dave's slide mark and we had no idea that if he hadn't grabbed onto that tree that he was going to drop about 20 feet straight down. <laughs> Idiotic camping. I know. I mean, I'm not going to say that he he would have died, but you know he wouldn't have come out of that okay. I mean, that was a straight drop. I think there was sand down there. He'd have been... Bruised. Severely bruised, (laughs) unless he landed on a tree. Right. His pride and his body. That's right. And I remember I had to go to the bathroom so bad, but I was terrified of walking over to the public bathrooms (laughs) because I assumed that there was some psychopath in there. My imagination has caused more problems than anything else. I easily could have just gone over there and pooped. It's not like there was a badger in there or rats or a serial killer just waiting. Why would a serial killer wait in the middle of the winter and hang out at at a dead park just like, oh, I've been here for six weeks. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm so patient to kill somebody. For some idiot who may come camping, <laughs> and I, we I remember were the only ones in the campsite. I think so I spent that first twenty-four hours just like cramped up, like, "Oh, I gotta go," but I'm not going over there. No, I'm not going over there. And you guys wandered off for a little bit, and I kind of like, oh, "I'm gonna stay here and do something." And then when you guys were gone, I wandered off into the woods with toilet paper. And I just pooped right there in the woods. <laughs> But I kept waiting for a car or someone to come around or is going, what are you doing? Oh, my God, I'm nothing, nothing. 
So now instead of a bear, we can use you in that sense. Yep. Right? Does a cook <laughs> does a cook poop in the woods? Yep. <laughs> it does be absolutely has to. And it was he so. Knows that there's a serial killer hiding out in the portage. This is this is TMI, <laughs> but I had to poop so much that I remember like it literally like hitting the ground, and I had to like raise up because it just I couldn't <laughs> stop pooping. It was insane. I was like, this is like a mound. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> that'll that'll teach me. From now on, just go to go to the uh, the stalls. Seriously, I hope nobody out there is eating right now. No, no, good God. <laughs> if you're, I mean, if you're not grossed out, you're probably laughing about it. And I remember that's the first time we saw bats. Or at least I had seen bats. You lived out in the country, so you probably saw them on a regular basis. But I, you know, I lived oh, in yeah. town. I never saw a bat before, and it just flipped me out. I was like, "What the hell is that? Are they gonna get us? They're gonna bite us?" I love bats, but if they're flying over my head, I'll, I'll be one of the first ones to run. Yeah, so. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> they won't eat me, but I don't, you know, I've seen way too many bat movies. I think it's anyway. funny that we would uh, we went fishing that first night, and we gave no concern whatsoever to all of our stuff still being at the campsite and us being like half a mile away at the pier. Oh, there was no pier. We packed, were we on a pier? Yeah, there was a pier. Remember, we went to it like quite a few times over the years. Like we'd go at like two o'clock in the morning and just fish for two or three hours. We never caught a single thing. Oh, the boat launch. Yeah, That's the boat we... launch. Okay, okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's all right. I, don't know, I remember camping or fishing off the beach when because the water was down at this point. It wasn't a reservoir; it was a river. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what reservoir was that anyway? Uh, Salamone. Salamone. That's right. Because I worked at the Huntington Reservoir, but we went over to Salamone, which is actually quite a bit farther. It's like, what, a half hour out? I'll say Huntington campgrounds are nice, but Salamone camps, they're a lot nicer. Uh, the trails are nicer, and it was the uh, primitive grounds, which explains the Port of John. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not. It's, I worked at the Huntington Reservoir. It's not like they were like sophisticated. They were just, just slightly better. Yeah, and they had power. And there was something kind of cool about us being, like, completely by ourselves. Though if we all died or something horribly happened, no one would find us for weeks. Eh, we'd just be one with nature. <laughs> well, I guess, what, what do we care? We're dead. You know, we wouldn't even notice. Now, do you remember going, actually, you, you totally remember this story. Because of all the things that we talk about from this vacation, this is the one that keeps coming up. Is we went fishing the second day. And I think it was just me, you, and Dave, because Robert had to go into town for something, or he went home to get something. Right. And we're all fishing, and I got sick of it. The wind was so bad. I'll show, I can put pictures online. You can see how cold I was. And I couldn't take anymore, so I was just going to head back to the campsite, and I took a shortcut. I should not have taken that shortcut, because I went straight down a hill, thinking that, oh, the speed will just carry me right over the mud. Nope. Uh, the minute I hit that mud, I sucked straight in. I mean, it was like the like quicksand. It took my shoes and my socks, and I was completely covered in mud, head to toe, just almost, except for my actual face. I mean, I had it on the back of my head, I had it all over my arms, everything was completely coated. And, and I, and, and, we knew you were alive, we were laughing our ass. Yes, I was calling for you, and by the time you got to me, because you were so far away, I was so frustrated and so upset. I, I mean, I remember pulling my shoe out. I had to dip my arm in all the way to the elbow to pull my shoe out. And I never got those socks back. Never. Yeah, we don't even know where they went. And, and I have to admit to this, I, I was crying. I was crying. Because I don't know why I was crying. It was just such a defeatist moment. And you were laughing at first, but then you saw I was crying. I and you're like, oh, sh oh shit, this is serious. 
I'll say we probably didn't help much. No, but I remember just waddling my ass back after you guys helped me get out of there and just I barely moving. I was shivering so bad. I was, And then I got to the campsite and I stripped down to my underwear. I was so cold that I was actually warmer <laughs> just being in my underwear than being covered in mud, you know. <laughs> and do you remember a few hours later me trying to chisel all the mud off my shoes, being in my yeah. underwear, and then yeah. Dave's family showed up? <laughs> just I, I didn't even notice it. I didn't hear them I was so upset so focused on trying to get my shoes back in functioning order that I didn't know a car pulled up behind me and I'm just I'm just in my boxers and it's like 25 <laughs> degrees out it's because Mike's a mountain man yeah and I think they actually I think here's the thing is I think they actually go what is Michael doing and he goes oh he's just cleaning his shoes she goes why does he look like a caveman and I'm just like, I'm so frustrated and angry. And I look at her and I go, oh, shit, I better put some plug up, some sort of clothing on. <laughs> I think Robert ended up giving me clothes because he had an extra pair because he had just gone home to change. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, because we didn't prepare I very well for this. No, we did not at all. It's ridiculous how little we... Up, was it Aaron and her family, and Robert's girlfriend at the time, they had a camp box. So they, if we had that, we were prepared. We didn't get that to the second night. No. Wait, we we actually had that on the first trip. I didn't think we got it until the second year. Oh, we got it on the second trip, on the first trip, but we didn't get it to the second day because Robert's like, you know, we need some stuff, and I know where I can get one. That's that's why he was gone while we were fishing. Yeah. I couldn't remember. <laughs> and then, um, other than that, I don't think there was anything weird that year. Except I thought it was pretty cool how we got to wander around. You know, because the reservoir had dropped down, and it was a lot of barren wasteland. And we're just wandering around finding all this stuff that had been dumped in the reservoir. It was like a weird treasure hunt if you were a demented hobo. <laughs> well, I found some. I remember finding a Seven Up bottle from. It had to be from the eighties. Well, it's nineteen ninety-five, so that's not that ancient. Oh, like early eighties. <laughs> like when did they stop using glass bottles? I mean, this this was a sixteen-ounce bottle that you know you hadn't seen those in a while. That's right, because they stopped. They stopped. They started doing it again recently, just because it's like a retro thing now. You're right. It was probably about 15 years yeah. without glass bottles. Speaking so of glass bottles, these. are you smash? Do you still have it? Is that what you're doing right now? No, these are the new uh, sugar, real sugar Mountain Dew bottles. I'm going to make uh, lamps out of them. That's cool. We'll see if I don't crack them up. <laughs> but I remember we got your uh, your um, not I want to say float your um, crap. Why why I hate I hate it when words pass me by. A dingy. Yeah, it was like a the dingy. little. Was it was it air or was it uh, a real boat? No, it was a little blob dingy. Remember how tired we were trying to row? How weak we were? <laughs> we're like, oh my god, we're only going like sixty feet. We're like, oh shit, I'm so hard. Your turn, your turn. And then like after twenty strokes, like, oh god, my arms are on fire. You do it. And we barely got across. And then we just wandered around for a while. That day was good. Remember that was day was so good that we didn't even wear coats. Yeah. We're just wearing like our sweatshirts. It was such a beautiful day just wandering around that barren wasteland and like rowing and stuff like that. But it didn't help that there was a big gigantic leak in the boat. Really? I don't remember that. Yeah, we kept having to blow it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would hate it if it like started to blow out just as we're in the water. I'm like, I'm not getting in this water. It's like 12 degrees. <laughs> well. I think that's about it of the first year. Do you, do you have anything else you remember from the first year? Uh... No. Oh, you know what? I actually do remember one other thing. I forgot. What year was it that Rick went with us? That was the second year. Was it the second year? Okay. 
Yeah. Um, the first year, I remember I had to go for my interview at Target, and I ran so far behind that I did not take a shower. I am stunned they didn't hi- uh, that they didn't just like shoo me away. Go away, you smelly little man. <laughs> I mean, I had to reek. Maybe I only reeked to myself, but I don't know. I don't know how I got that job because I was pretty bad. Half of them that worked there probably smelled the same way. So. That or I have amnesia, and maybe I did go home and take a shower. <laughs> but I feel like I got there at the last minute. Well, you didn't do a whole lot of sweat in the, you know. This is true. Too cold, so. Still, I mean, you could be in a freezing cold weather and you still be kind of, you kind of rank. I have a oh, weird, yeah. I have a weird onion smell when I sweat. Ugh. <laughs> I smell like chili dogs when I get stinky. It's bizarre. I suppose it, it could be like worse. Poop. It could smell like poop, but I smell like chili dogs. It was the, it was the second year that we went. That's when the rain killed us. The whole thing was kind of a disaster because, though it was more fun, we had we have better stories from the second year than we did the first year just because we added beer and fireworks and gasoline. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so the second year, we actually brought other people with us. Uh, Rick, what is Rick's last name? Follis. Follis. I want to say it was Foley, but yeah, that's Mick Foley. Rick Follis came with us. I remember, I think he was only there the first night, right? First night. He had a brand new truck he just put, well not brand new, but brand new to him. And it got stuck, didn't it? He decided he'd, he'd go four-wheeling with it off the boat off the boat ramp. <laughs> off the boat ramp? He went down the boat launch, into the sand, and immediately proceeded to sink to the axle. Was he I there? Truck. Was yeah. I there for that? You sure? I don't know. I think you might have been up the site with Jay. No, no, no. Do you remember? Okay, so it was Jay. I kept trying to remember that guy's name. Jay went with, uh, went to school with us in Vincennes, but none of us can remember his damn last name. Yeah, I've been trying to track him down, but no, nobody knows his last name. He's, he's Polish. So he has a Polish last name that's... Anyway. Yeah. Something, something that ends in L-O-U-S, I think. I, I wrote it down, and all I did was put Jay like a knucklehead. <laughs> Me too. Um, the one funny thing about... Okay, Jay was a 50-50 shot of whether he was going to be annoying or... Totally friggin' awesome. At least in he my opinion. Out to be pretty good. What's that? He turned out to be pretty good. Yeah, there were times though when he would be so caught up in his neurotic behavior. Cause you remember he he, he always told us the story about you know his dad was this big hotel you know uh, yep. uh, executive, and he never had time for him ever had time for him because he always kind of ignored him. But he was trying to groom him to take over for him, you know. And I, I feel like that put a lot of pressure on him. So Jay was really like neurotic about everything. Right. But still, he was so much fun. And when he when he was in the mood, he was a total blast. But was just trying to get him into that mood, right? But I remember he was miserable during that trip. What? I I, I could have swore he was like just annoyed as hell because that first night was so cold and so wet. Yeah, I don't think he was expecting that, but I don't think it was that bad. No. Uh, after that, though, the second day it got better. But that first night, though. Um, yeah, it was so insanely cold, so wet. And remember how all six of us slept in one huge tent? <laughs> Think- well, okay, so people know this tent is actually huge, so <laughs> but it's not like we're packed on top of each other. <laughs> but if I remember correctly, there was a little too much beer going around, and we were too well, exhausted yeah. and too goofy <laughs> to actually put together the other tent. So we all slept in one tent, but we couldn't move one inch. But it was almost for the best because we were so cold. <laughs> And it was made worse when we woke up and there was, we have new meaning for the title, A River Runs Through It. Yeah, but here's the thing is, I didn't experience this. Do you remember, like at 4 o'clock in the morning? 4 o'clock in the morning, I said, fuck this, and I literally drove home 
Um, <laughs> I got my truck, no shoes to speak of. I don't know. I didn't even feel like finding my shoes in the dark. I literally just walked out in my bare socks, got in my car, and it was so cold that it kind of frosted over the, the, um, the water. And so my window was covered in frost and ice, and I drove home in the middle of the night, no shoes, freezing my ass off, and all I can see is like six-inch semicircle. That's it. That's all I could see <laughs> driving home the whole way. I, I went don't remember home. if you told us you left. What? I don't even remember if you told us you left. I think I might have told Robert, and that was it, because everybody else was out cold. I could not sleep. Remember, I was the skinniest of the... Well, no, you were pretty skinny back then, too. Man, yeah, I could... I I couldn't retain body heat for anything. <laughs> yeah, I miss those days. <laughs> That's not too late, buddy. I started putting on weight. I I, for I'm the first time in my life, I started putting on weight, and I'm a little concerned. <laughs> Got a little tired going. I weigh, uh, I, I've always weighed like, what, 120, 130 at most, and now I weigh almost 160. That's what I need to weigh. <laughs> most, of it's in, right. most of it's in my head. I just got a big skull. It's made of titanium. I got a couple of plates in there. Quite literally in your head. It's on your head. <laughs> um, but I remember, yeah, I, I went home and I slept in my bed. And it was so warm and I got a shower. And then you guys came into town. Did we leave our stuff at the site? Did I we... don't know. Because I could have swore we left everything at the site and you guys came into town. And that's when we went to go see Rumble in the Bronx. That's the movie we want. I remember we have a picture of that it's like the one of two pictures we have of jay yeah i have a picture of me t of you and you of me at the theater and yeah. <laughs> uh you guys you guys just wanted to get out because i think it was still pretty wet and cold that that second day in the morning so we just went to the first showing of rumble in the bronx and you remember how confused we were in the beginning when we we're like why aren't their lips lining up with what they're saying and then we realized it was dubbed <laughs> but man that movie is so much fun yeah. I think that kind of enlightened the spirits, and that's when I remember Jay being a lot happier, because the second night went better, and then it, and it kind of warmed up and it dried out. Um, I think we went straight back out, didn't we? We didn't do anything else. Yeah, we didn't do anything else. We may have stopped at the house and picked some stuff up, but Dave's or yours, I can't remember. But Yeah, I, that was that was the second night was a lot uh, more interesting, because that's when the beer drinking wasn't to like take care of our annoyance. It was more like, hey, let's have fun now. <laughs> And then that's when we got into trouble with fireworks, gasoline, and too much alcohol. This is the first camping trip, speaking of the tent, the first camping trip, I remember that night because it was all freaking windy. The first night we were there, the outer zipper of that thing did not zip up. It was broke. Oh. So we had to stake down a tarpaulin over the tent so that, you know. <laughs> and I remember waking up in the middle of the night. We're all laying there, wide awake, with the thing flopping in the wind. Of like, okay, who's going to get up? <laughs> None of us wanted to get out of our. We had literally at least if we had two sleeping bags, we were in them. We had two sets of clothes on. <laughs> but by God, we weren't going home. <laughs> yeah, we don't give up. There, there's so many reasons. Okay, technically, I gave up that first night, but that was brutal. That was I was like so much pain. But um. I'm trying to remember now. I can't remember if it was that, that second night or the third night where you guys all left to go do something. And I don't know how it happened that someone had to stay at the campsite because we didn't trust leaving our stuff there. Apparently, we, were, we trusted it during the day, but not at night. And uh, so I stayed behind, and Jay was supposed to stay with me. But Jay went with you guys instead, and you guys left me all alone. And you were gone for a good, it seemed like hours, but I'm sure it was only like 20 minutes. You went to Robert's house or something. But you came back, and I didn't know this, 
and I kept hearing all this howling, like insane amount of howling. And you remember how I had the BB gun? And I remember just like holding that as a weapon. I mean, I wasn't even holding it as if it was a gun. I was holding it as if it was an axe ready to beat something down because it kept getting louder. And all of a sudden, a truck goes by so fast with its lights blaring or whatever. And I hold up the gun ready to shoot like a BB gun's going to do anything to a truck, full, you know, full speed. And I had no idea. And I was scared out of my fucking mind. And you guys came up and were going, are you okay? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> what just happened? I mean, I was kind of mad too, but looking back, it was a pretty good prank. Oh, man. Speaking of howling wolves, wasn't that the second trip where we went out in the woods looking for, we were, this is how idiotic we were. We heard a pack of dogs. So instead of getting in our vehicles and where it's safe, we went to set to go find them. Did we ever find that? them? Didn't we just find no. them at some house off in the middle of nowhere? Like it was just two dogs at like the guy who was in charge of the whole campsite? Yeah, well, it's a state park, so I think it was a farmhouse, though, where we found all the dogs. We didn't actually go all the way to the farmhouse, but it, we saw a house in the distance and just assumed it was from there, so. Yeah, that was, but I remember, for the most part, all we did was wander around like we usually did. We would go fishing and then stuff like that, but for some reason, I remember specifically listening to the Robin Williams CD like two or three times. We thought it was just genius. You, It was your tape, I think. Yeah. I mean, I hate to bring it up now because, you know, he just passed away, but I remember that being one of the most significant things I think about when he did pass was the fact that we had so many good times listening to that CD so much over the years, but the first time I ever heard it was on that trip. Night at the Met? Yeah. Yeah. That was just one of those things that all we ever had was your tape player and all those tapes, and that was the one that really stuck out in my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. I had a gajillion tapes, and I bought the majority of them all wobbly and... Well, your tapes survived, but yeah, I was gonna say your tapes went through you know a grand adventure. If your tapes were anything I can relate to a movie, it was like the Hobbits going to Mordor. Everywhere, <laughs> everywhere we went, you had at least some tapes. Like you know, we went to uh, what the the senior trip we went on. Yeah. Okay, so we didn't go on spring break very much, but we did go to senior trip. We went to Cedar Point, or was it Kings Island? Oh, I can't remember. Which is the one up north? I think it's Cedar Point. Cedar Point up north, yeah. Yeah, we went there for a senior trip, and then we went like the year later too. Or a year or two later. Was that us that went? Because I remember all of us as friends went to Dave's aunt, stayed up there, and went to Cedar Point. Is that what you're talking about? Or? Well, no, senior trip. Well, that was our that was our thing. It was me, you, and Dave, and a bunch like you know fifty other people. Tim Kohler went. I don't know what? if Robert went, but we went. You know, we went to Cedar Point. No, that's right. I did go with Robert because you guys would spend three hours in line. Um, <laughs> trying to get into one ride, whereas me and Robert were smart enough to get into the quick rides, you know, the shorter ones, and doing that like 15 times, and you guys are still in line. We're like, we got, we would literally go right back into line and go up again and again and again and again. But it was so worth it. Was it? Because we were <laughs> yeah. just like, there's no way I'm sitting. big ones, I mean. Yeah. Well, I, some of yours was the big ones, too. I guess you were just older, but. Yeah, ours were older. They were pretty big. It's just they weren't the current ones. Do you remember that one that everybody wanted to get in line for? Because it was a brand new one, and they said yeah, it was. Just... They literally said it was a three-hour wait. That one where it was like green and it was like the the it was like raptor. A, the raptor was that it? That's that the one that hangs. Yeah, the where your hang where your, where your uh your feet hang down. Yeah, that's the raptor. Yeah, that one terrified the shit out of me. There was no way I was getting into that one. No, no, no. I always thought my legs would just get lopped right off. Oh. Uh. 
I mean, it's I been tested it. a bil- billion times. We know your legs aren't going to get ripped off. For some reason, I was convinced mine would. <laughs> well, you are tall and lanky. Yeah, well, still. <laughs> I'm sure there's guys taller than me that w- that never got injured. I remember the one. I don't. I don't remember the ride that we were on. The one that went upside down. The one that me and Robert took like over and over. But I remember every single time I had to take my glasses off, put them in my shirt, shut the pocket, hold on to them for dear life as we're going over. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many sunglasses I went through on those trips. Yeah, trying I, to hold on to them while I'm holding on to the outside. So I've got them wrapped around my fingers and I'm holding on to it like that's going to help. And then I'm getting jostled around and beat up, and the glasses end up. Popping a lens or something, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we did go the next year. I don't remember. I think it was during the summer. I don't think it was spring break because we always did idiot camping. But I remember there was a spring break where it was me, you, Dave, Irina, and then there was some blonde kid and his girlfriend. I don't even remember their names. Uh, Alan, and I don't remember. It was Jackie, I think, sir, was her name. Do you still talk to Alan? No, I just remember the names. Oh, because you guys are pretty good friends for a while there. I don't know what happened to him. I remember Alan because I got a picture around here somewhere yeah it's sitting right here actually on my wall it's the western one right yeah but you look like billy the kid i look like some card shark hey can you post that online so i can see it again yeah, definitely hey is robert dave. in that one yeah robert's in it Irina's in it and jackie is dave in it now dave well we all look good in this thing but dave and alan both have like the blue eyes ah and just the way the pictures say, they look like they belong in that era, you know, just, (laughs) anyway, yeah, but definitely, I'll I'll scan it and put it up. Um, The other thing I remember is, you guys went on a trip without me, Um, I I, I think I had a play I had to work on that weekend, so I couldn't go, you guys did go to the other amusement park, so if the Cedar Point's the one up north, Kings Island, then you went to the Kings Kings Island one, it was you, Jack Vermillion, Brian Morton, um, right. Who else did you go with? I'm trying to remember. Were you with Irene at the time? I'm not sure I went to that one. I, I think I remember them going, but I don't think I went. Maybe you and I didn't go, but Dave went. I'm, all I remember from that is the fact that Brian Morton puked over and over and over and <laughs> over. And they would tell us uh, horror stories of it. Uh, Schroeder, that's right, Schroeder drove. And I remember him telling me that Brian was going to puke just as they were turning from one lane to the other. Like, you know, going across. And Brian opening the door and just barfing the entire way. Like, leaving a streak of puke as they were changing over lanes. Okay, I would have remembered that. No, I didn't go on that one. And, I, you know, it's funny. I don't really remember us taking a whole lot of trips. Um, I think that was about it. Because the other ones, we went separate. Like, I went to Thunder over Louisville without you. I went completely by myself. Just, like, a whole different group of friends. And yeah. then we went to Metropolis, Illinois, yeah, but that was that was me, Dave, and Brian and Devon. Right. Right? Did Devon go to that one? I don't you know what I don't think Devon went to that one because here's the thing. Is we went to that trip, I don't think I've ever told you about this. Is we went to the Metropolis, Illinois Superman Museum. Uh, Metropolis is like the hometown of of Superman and they have like a big museum, they have a huge statue in town. And I can show you pictures of it later online. But um we get there and we're we're so far behind because Brian keeps missing the exits over and over and he won't turn around to go back to him. He just wants to go around in a full circle and it's just losing we're losing hours. And we finally get there, and we only have about two hours to get through the whole thing, and we know how big the museum is, so we need every moment. And um I remember about halfway through, for some reason, uh Dave 
opens a glass case and pulls out these Superman boots. I don't know what he was thinking because those are real boots from the movie. And he put them back down or whatever, not thinking about it. And I was like, you know we could get in trouble for that, right? That's official merchandise. <laughs> and then Brian and this other guy, I cannot remember his name. They, uh, they were screwing around in the phone booth, which you're not supposed to get in. And the gentleman came out and asked us not to touch any more stuff or he'd have to kick us out. I would have hated to drive all that way, paid all that money to get in the museum, <laughs> and to be kicked out. Oh, and the other thing is, there's a Superman statue, a massive Superman statue in downtown, and we all got our pictures with it. But Brian thought it'd be hilarious if he would continuously punch Superman in the balls in every picture. <laughs> and um, I kid you not, uh, we were at Dairy Queen after the museum closed and we're eating, and then some lady goes, that's the guy who was punching Superman. <laughs> this town was so small that they knew one guy out of like, I don't know how many people, like three, 4,000 people, he was the one punching Superman in the balls. What are the chances? You still there? Yeah. Oh, okay. We're, <laughs> Sorry. We're, we're kind of off subject matter, but I figured we might as well get all of our vacations in college, you know, in high school out. But uh, I guess to wrap up the high school or the uh, the idiot camping part two is I remember that last night we got all a little toasty and um, we were doing things like walking through the fire. Remember? Do you remember us putting the board over the fire and trying to walk over it really fast? Yeah. And my and I it, it broke when I went through and I landed right in the fire and I had to jump out immediately. My shoes actually had like melt marks all over them. You should have kept those, man. Oh, forever. <laughs> and then and then for some reason we uh started adding fireworks to it and I remember and Robert is going to be embarrassed by this and it's okay. We we're kids. It was 20 something years ago, so we can forgive ourselves. But he brought gasoline or something like that. Do you remember? Uh, you have no idea. And we lit a little bit of that gasoline, and then we're putting like a couple bottle rockets in it, and I can't believe none of us got injured. I think I was probably hiding behind a table or something. Yeah, it was probably somewhere like, this is a great idea. Five minutes later, this is a terrible idea. What were we thinking? <laughs> we're all going to die. Dave was our residential pyromaniac. Oh, I have a picture of him, like, poking at a huge, huge fire. That fire was almost as tall as he was, and he just, like, playing with it. <laughs> do you remember him trying to get the fire higher so he would go down into the woods and break off huge chunks of trees yeah, he's literally yeah. pulling trees out of the ground and tearing them apart and throwing them in just to get it higher <laughs> I, I you know dave was my friend but man when he it came to fireworks or fire period i knew to get the hell away <laughs> i learned this when he lit a um a cherry bomb and gave it to me and i didn't know it was lit he thought it was hilarious, but I think he understood the ramifications when I didn't know it was lit, and I went to light it, and I and I went to toss it or whatever, and it blew up like two inches from my hand, and my hand turned black. That hurt. Yeah, that really hurt like hell. Was I there for that? Yeah, it was, it, it, was at, it was at your house. Oh, of course it was. Oh, yeah. Do you remember okay. when, when the cops had to stop us? We were at that church parking lot doing fireworks with me, you, and my sister, and they came <laughs> to stop us. We're like, ah, crap. Do you have, well, my grandparents go to church, Eric. Do you have permission? No. I don't know. Why do I lie like that? Why do I lie? There was no, that was not helping the situation any. Oh, yeah, they go here. And what's your point? Uh, I'm dumb. Well, mine did. <laughs> Look, we were at the Nazarene parking lot. Hopefully, none of them are listening right now. But <laughs> they can't post. That was my grandparents' church. So. <laughs> anyway, so I was thinking, okay, I know where there's a really big parking lot and there's no one there right now. 
Well, yeah, it was out in the country, too. We won't be disrupting anything or bothering anybody. We thought it would be safe, and we were wrong. (laughs) That's why we should always just, we always should have just done fireworks out of your house, because you were out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, except I think that year we had probably had, I think we had corn out there or something. Oh, that's right, because you didn't, you didn't own the house, right? You were leasing it? Yeah, uh, we were, yeah, we were renting the house, and the farm around it was being farmed by someone else. Yeah, I forgot about that. But, yeah. I remember the fire department being called out to my Uncle Eddie's house one year for the same reason. For fireworks? <laughs> he, had a bonfire, he had a bonfire going, too, but we had fireworks going, bottle rockets. We were shooting bottle rockets out of tubes and what have you, but the fire department actually showed up at his house. <laughs> that must have been a serious, serious. <laughs> well, the bonfire was pretty big, and the fields were up, and anyway, yeah. You know, yeah other than the camping trips, I think the only other thing we ever did, I think... I don't think it was spring break because that was all one week. But you know that that summer, um, we went up to what town was it that Matt lived in? Matt and Jack. Oh crap! Valparaiso. No, it was New something or other. I guess it doesn't really matter. But we went up there, and um, I remember it being really awkward because I didn't know this that we stayed there on a Saturday night, and I didn't know on Sunday morning that uh, we'd be going to church. And I'm not Catholic. Not that I'm not allowed to step into a Catholic church, but then there's communion, and I've never, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't know what to do because I'm not Catholic, and it was really awkward. And you guys said it'd be okay, but I believe that Matt got really upset that I went up there. Oh, <laughs> well, that's back before I knew anything. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I, I was like, oh, okay, well, I mean, I didn't want to be like the only one sitting back there because I literally was the only one still. If I didn't go, I'd be like all alone. And I went up there, and I remember him being upset that I did that. And I was like, oh, I, I, I'm i Christian. Well, at least at the time I was Christian. And I was like, I didn't realize that was a big offense. Is it? Oh, well, it's – I just read this the other day at a wedding, uh, my cousin's wedding. I was like, I should think of the same thing. I said, okay, I, I actually joined the Catholic Church at one point and decided to go a different direction. And – I still didn't know whether this was okay or not, so I looked it up on the internet while I'm sitting there in the pew waiting. <laughs> Am I supposed to go up to the <laughs> like, and they say no? So I mean, they they appreciate your your faith and everything, but yeah, they really don't want you to go up there. I'm like, all right. I had no idea. No, it's really awkward after that. Um, that's the only weird thing I can remember from that. I do remember us going up to. Uh, a campsite or something. We, didn't we stay overnight like a campsite or something like that? And um, we had that race to see who get up that massive, massive hill. And uh, Warren Dunes. Yeah, the dune. What was it? Warren Dunes. Is that up by? Is that up by Chicago? It's actually in. It's in uh, Michigan. But uh, where we went first actually was some campgrounds outside. I think it was in uh, right where Indiana Dunes is at. But then we had seen like in the distance we had seen. Uh, uh, nuclear reactors. <laughs> I'm like, do we really want to stay here? <laughs> I said, screw it. Let's drive up into Michigan. And I, I had mentioned Warren and the Big Dune, and that's where we ended up. So, I remember Dave lost. Uh, Dave lost his prized razor. I still have no idea to this day how he did it, but I'm pretty sure he just left it in the bathroom by accident and la- you know walked out. And someone just right. got sticky fingers immediately after that because I don't remember him being gone very long without it. He was really upset. Yeah. I remember him attempting. talking about a power razor? Yeah, I remember he left it there. And I remember after that he tried to grow a beard, and it was just like, oh, no, Dave, you can't you can't grow a beard. 
That's like six hairs, and they're all going out. Where you look like Garfield. You look like Garfield. <laughs> I, I've got. Man, I'm trying to look up that town, but my map is moving one inch per minute. I suppose we could just ask Jack. I mean, we are friends with him on Facebook, so. There you go. I think it's Laporte. La that's right, Laporte. But it's but it's it's by Valparaiso, right? Yeah, that's so. Uh, Where's Valpo? I, I don't I know. You know, it doesn't matter. Anyway. <laughs> what was the story you were going to tell me? You went back. You went back up there. Uh, was it by yourself? You went to some concert at Matt's house? Yeah, he had tickets to Terry Clark and Brian White. So yeah. I went up there. And, uh, yeah, I know. I feel my country. <laughs> no, Terry Clark's pretty hot. I have to say this. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I went up there, and I stayed the night afterwards, and we went. It was Fourth of July weekend, so we went to his dad's house, and well, they're just as crazy with fireworks as we are. And they lived like six houses down from a gas station. Oh no! Oh wait, I wasn't I there for that because that was insane. I I don't know if you were there for not. Regardless, it it went up in the air, and then took off in a different direction than any of the other ones did. So we followed it and saw that it landed in the parking lot of the gas station. Like, <laughs> that's when we decided we were done. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I feel like I was there for that, or you told that story a few times. I feel oh, like I was there. Because I can't imagine I'd go up with you to go to that concert unless I just stayed around to watch TV, because I know I did not go to that concert. Right. This is right. back when I was, like, hardcore against country music. I've lightened up quite a bit about it, but, man, back then there's no way I'd go near. <sighs> Terry Clark's got some good music, but I don't think he'd get into the Brian White stuff. I, I think it's because, uh, you know, growing up in the town we grew up in, you know, I wasn't born there. I know a lot of people weren't born there, but I was born in the city. So we were. it was a different atmosphere. And then I got to Huntington, and it was very country. You know, it, it's, a, it's yeah. a farm town, basically. And I don't know. I mean, it was subconscious that I hated country just based on the fact that I was there. Or it's just something I wasn't used to. My parents didn't listen to country, so it was like something completely alien to me. So I never got into it. I had enough family members around me that listened to a little bit of everything that I was pretty eclectic. So. Yeah. The one thing I do remember liking, though, was Jerry Reed. Because you had a record of Jerry Reed, and we would pop that in and listen to it. Yeah. New Carlisle. That's the town. That's the town? I never yeah, would have guessed. Maybe New Carlisle. miles from Port. Okay. All right. So I guess that's it on me with uh, trips. I think me, too. All right. Well, thanks for sitting with me with this. Well, sort of sitting with me via Skype. <laughs> right. Uh, I guess that's it for us. Any last words? Uh, not at the moment. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know why we say last words. We're going to do other episodes together. <laughs> you know what would be great is if you could do an episode here. Or may I, maybe maybe I should just finally bite the bullet and come back. Oh. Uh, I mean, it's been it's been uh it's been <laughs> it's been 11 years since I've been back to Indiana. I, I mean, so much of me did not want to come back. But doing this show the stumbling towards adulthood, somehow it's cathartic. It's kind of helping me deal with a lot of that stuff. I mean, I'll tell you. people move on. I can't imagine that 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 stuff is still there that would make me so uncomfortable. Exactly. You know, next I mean, year I'm, is our reunion. Facebook and all, yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to that, too. I'm I not. Facebook, you haven't been on Facebook and able to get in touch with people. Uh, honestly, whenever I go back to Huntington, I swear, I very rarely ever run into anybody I know. And if I do, they've changed so much that I don't realize I know them. Oh, really? You like, know? have you had it's awkward just... moments where, like, hey, how you doing? You're like, I don't know. What? Uh, yeah, but... <laughs> Who are you again? But 
thing is, like, the people I talk to on Facebook, I'm like, we've all grown up, you know? Yeah. The things we did back then, we, you know, we were kids. I think a yeah. lot, I think a lot of it is, you know, the world, the world on the West Coast is, I don't know if it's changed in Indiana. I shouldn't assume these things. But here, a lot of it is about independence, about being yourself. You know, you can be as eccentric as you want to be. Uh, you don't have to follow the rules. You know, it's society has certain like kind of elements like by the age that we're at now you should be married you should have a stable job you should have kids you should be at these certain points i have no kids i have no marriage i have no relationship of any quality whatsoever that i can even talk about from my past i'm just not a dater you know i'm not a relationship person i've never had any interest in kids and i, I constantly bounce from town to town job to job I mean, I don't even have a cool story to tell. Like, you know, I was the fugitive or the Incredible Hulk where I have him on the run. That's why I'm going so much. No, I just move a lot and I'm not very stable. It makes me look like um, I'm not mentally well. And it just, you know, and the fact that obviously all the hair's falling out. I know I'm not the only person to have my hair fall out. But it's still, I'm still very sensitive about it. I don't want anybody walking up to me going, hey, Baldy, hey, you lost your hair, you know. Uh, I'm literally, I'm literally contemplating getting a toupee. Why? I don't know. I just I look at my head and I just think, fuck, that is this is hideous. I mean, I got a weird shaped Picard head. I, I my head looks like you know, uh, uh, odd. So I've been shaving mine as close as my razor will get there. Or not razor, uh, clippers. Yeah. Not bit the bullet yet and razored it off yet. But Wait, are you is you are you thinning out? Yeah, I got a patch in the back. Do you? Oh. Yeah. How are you? About to happen. I had already, I had the receding hairline for years. So, how are you about that emotionally? Is it okay? I, honestly, it doesn't bother me. Is it because you're married? No, honestly, really? I, I mean, I don't like the fact that it's happened, but I, I look at it, I'm like, there's nothing I can do about it. You know? I know, I know. There's unless nothing I, I want to go spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars and have plugs put in, which I don't can't afford. You know, you just gotta embrace it. And I know. Just screw it. I just look That's at it. That's when I decided to just shave it off. So screw it. I constantly look <laughs> at it and I just kind of cringe and I just kind of it kind of bothers me. I mean, literally, if I put a hat on, I look totally different. I look kind of attractive. Um, and then you take it off, and I, I mean, it's just not it's not the same. And you know, I don't have anybody, so it just kind of bugs me. But there are the bald thing, purposely bald or otherwise. Yeah. It's become pretty big, I think. I know, and it's it's uh, like it shouldn't even bother me, but it does. I don't ha- I don't look like Jason Statham, man. I look like a a, a Q tip, a Q tip that the fuzz is falling off of. As long as you not, you know, have a thousand tattoos and always have a scowl on your face, they won't think you're a skinhead or anything. No, but man, I gotta tell you, <laughs> women are loving the women are loving the huge beard and the tattoos. So I've got I don't have a huge beard, but I I do love the beard. I I can't grow a beard. I mean, I can grow a beard like nobody's business. I mean, I'm like I'm like a Teen Wolf, and it just like <laughs> it's there. I shave and it's back again. Um, but I break out so bad. I did grow a mustache though, like a hipster doofus mustache. I look I look actually okay. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll grow a big curly waxed up mustache, and that'll be my that'll be my substitute for having no hair on my head. That I'll play with the hair on my face. I can call you Rahul. Rahul. <laughs> what was what was what was you that name? Do you remember that name I had for my alternate personality? Was it Raul? No. Dang it, what was it? Oh, crap. I remember you using it a lot in college. Yeah, I would just walk around, hello, my sweet, how are you? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, well, I'll, I'll think of it after we hung up. But 
I hope we get to have another vacation together. We've been putting it off for a long time. We keep talking about me coming back or you coming out here. I mean, you have kids, so it's a lot harder for you to come out here. It, it, it basically is nothing for me, but I've just faced so many damn financial problems for so many years that it's just, it makes it difficult for me to come back. Yeah. I keep thinking about it, but everybody's divided up. You know, everybody's off in their own direction now. Yeah. We'll keep trying to get camping trips together, Dave and Robert and I. And this last one I tried to put together, Robert actually mentioned going out west. So I don't know. Maybe yeah. we could pull something like that together or something. But Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's it, family to do it. It's, it's awkward because I haven't talked to Dave since the day I left. Yeah. I mean, I tried, but he never just communicated with me. Yeah. Dave's a busy guy. Yeah. It just it, it, it kind of sucked. That's all. Yeah. You know, so I, don't, I don't talk too much either. So <laughs> that happens. But at least you know the fun thing is that we have these memories. That we have the pictures. That we're telling this story right now. You know, one day maybe your kids will listen to this, or maybe I'll be fortunate enough to have kids and uh, that's scary to, sh- to share to share these stories. You know, yeah, that's a scary thought that they'd be listening to. This. <laughs> well, say like, well, what Zeke is going to take a good long time. But how old is your daughter again? Ten, twelve. She's 11. 11? Oh, wow. The one number I missed. That's right. You know, she's only, what, seven years off? I mean, what? Did I, I only cuss like once, right? Oh, you're, I'm just messing. Oh, but you're probably <laughs> talking about the alcohol and the fireworks. <laughs> Look, every parent has a story they're kind of embarrassed about. And the funny thing is, is actually your kids can learn from it because, you know, don't mix fireworks with gasoline at all or alcohol <laughs> and firewood. If you're going to make really huge, idiotic mistakes, make your own. And make sure they're funny. Make sure they're funny right. as hell. Don't be like, oh, yeah, I killed a hobo in the bear in the backyard. I don't know what I was yeah. thinking. Huge mistake. Make sure it doesn't inquire, uh, or involve jail time. Yes, yes. <laughs> Please. All right, so uh, I guess that's it for us. Yep. You want to say goodbye? Like a real big goodbye? Goodbye! Alright, so Tony's here. Uh, he joined me about a quarter of the way into our little vacation trip fun thing, whatever you want to call it. So what we did um, after he got there was we went to the second panel, and that's where we uh, saw, like, uh, let's just say the big names were not there. But they had good stories. Not all of them, I would say, were good storytellers, though. Uh, yeah, it was pretty clear that the only one person was an actor as a career, and the rest of them were sort of like your everyday guys, which is why we kind of got the everyday stories, which is neat, because... Uh, Usually the actor stories are really focused around each other, but we got to hear a lot about the cast and uh, the crew, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's usually pretentious, honestly, when it comes to actors. And, uh, man, I don't, you know, I have to say, like, at least it's like, hey, these are the cool guys. You know, these are just the guys that, like, this is something special to them. Yeah, I'm sure they've told the story, like, 3,000 times. Oddly, you think they would have had the story down by then. You know what I mean? Like, it would have been, like, pretty streamlined, but there was a lot of... Uh, but, um, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the second guy, the quote-unquote kid wrangler, the uh, former assistant of Steven Spielberg, I loved his uh, continual, let me just 
recheck my notes real fast because <laughs> I, I don't really remember all this. I, I wrote it down for this event, but uh, yeah. All right, so the first person we had was Michael Alderman. He was basically uh, responsible for, like, well, wasn't he uh, Spielberg's assistant, right? He worked for Amblin. The very first person actually had nothing to do with the production at all. He was a guest uh, enthusiast who happened to know the uh, the location manager and was he had two choices. His choices were either a be a part of the cat or a part of the crew and do like odd jobs here or there, or b get introduced to the to the director who he thought it was Spielberg at the time. Turns out it was Donner, which is still kind of cool. Yeah. And sort of just to watch the production, see how it goes, and see how everything works. Uh, yeah, you're right. I, I apologize. I switched people's. Michael Alderman, yeah, he's the first guy. And he did a book called Three Weeks with the Goonies, which I imagine, I hate to be a jerk here, but yeah, I imagine that's probably like his big thing. But uh, he has worked for other companies. Uh, it's just like the Goonies is like that one that you can tell the story over and over. Uh, he worked on Millennium Pictures. That's the company that did The Expendables, and they do a lot of like... Uh, movies like Antonio Banderas, Steven Seagal, Van Damme. You know, they do the action movies that usually sell well overseas. So yeah. it's not like he's just some schmo that just stayed in Astoria, and that's what his one good story. <laughs> but it was the way that he portrayed himself was interesting because he wasn't really a public speaker. He was having trouble doing it throughout. But the fact that he was really humble about it, he didn't really mention anything else besides just the one thing he was working on. It was kind of cool seeing you know, the 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 pin board with all the relics that he kept and all the random things and small world moments and situations. So it, it was kind of clear that uh, he did definitely belong there. Yeah. Um, so obviously that's a weird way to start off the show is, you know, some guy, someone who's not really a public speaker, but at least he had something to get, you know, like it wasn't just like I saw the Goonies walk down the street, but up, bum, and then we're done, you know. <laughs> he had some decent stuff. Uh, the second guest was Paul Gillum. Uh, he was the police officer. Okay, of all the people that were in the show, I have to say a little bit that he seemed a little like, yeah, I'm tough shit. Uh, you know, I get things done. What was this saying that he kept saying over and over? Oh. They come to me to get things done, I get them done. <laughs> it was like I kept waiting for like the audience to applause. Like this was his Fonzie moment. I was like, what's going on here? Um, though it was kind of neat to hear that uh, after he had done that, they had brought him back for a bunch of other movies, uh, Free Willy, Free Willy 2, and what have you. It was like, oh, he was basically their go-to guy for that entire area. Like he has the experience, and he can, you know, apparently get things done because he worked with the police. Yeah, there was uh, one story he told that was really fascinating was the fact that uh, they were doing a chase sequence. The opening sequence where they go from the jail out of town, and, uh, you know, they have all the catastrophes going on around that. He uh, he said they just kept going and going and going and took it out of Astoria. There's a huge bridge in Astoria that's actually quite terrifying as you go straight up. And then you kind of stop and then go straight down. And then it's like a mile. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's really long, like flat bridge that rides the water. Well, they were doing the chase sequence over that bridge, but at the time it was a toll bridge. And they had to pay whatever. They had to have someone in front of them. You know, going very fast, paying for everybody, then hauling it all the way over to the other side of the bridge. Which he revealed he had no jurisdiction or right to be over there. And even more fun, 
they didn't use any of that footage at all. <laughs> no, they didn't. So the whole thing, they put themselves at risk, and, uh, you know, it, it was all for nothing. And most of the stories he would tell was just like, you know, how do you arrange for the police to help, you know, block off stuff? Oh, didn't he tell us a story or something about some guy was going down a hill very fast and they went too far? He, so that was the story that I really enjoyed was the second story. It was also a part of the chase sequence, which they actually did use in the film. And it was a scene where they were driving uh, through a couple of streets, and the streets were very hilly, and so they'd catch air over every bump. Well, they'd only close the street from point A to point Q, but the stunt drivers, who he said were very you know, on point, very professional, never really had an issue, got a little ahead of themselves, got overly excited, were going over the hills, having a ball, and he freaks out, the, uh, the, the police officer basically runs out almost in front of them to get them to stop because they're going too fast and they're going too far. Well, they continue past the blockaded area and hop straight into cross traffic and barely got missed by any cross traffic at all. Yeah, when he said that, I, I was like, I remember that part from the movie. What? <laughs> and while he's talking, there was a plaque that he showed that every car that had to be on the set that was part of the filming, uh, they had a plaque that would be put in their car to make sure that was the appropriately... Uh, appropriate car, or whatever. But they pass that around for everybody to see, and we got our pictures taken with us. Pretty cool. For some reason, though, I cannot get the Steven Spielberg picture or the signature to come up in the picture, which is a bummer. Oh, that's that's sad. Uh, you try using my image. I think that one has also a clearer shot. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I'll look at that and see if that covers it. Um, yeah, for the most part, though, he was just kind of like discussing. It was cool from a technical standpoint. If you ever wondered how cops set up certain scenes, you know, like the scene where is it? Rosa? I can't remember what their maid's name is. Rosalita? Oh, wait, Rosalita, yeah. And Rosalita, where she is in the middle of the street as they're trying to drive through, but it was wet and slippery, and it was really a dangerous scene. And the fact that they used a real actress instead of a stunt person is <laughs> just escalates it up. But the reality of it is uh, it works. Yeah, a lot of the effects back in the day were all physical. You really couldn't do much besides physical effects back then. Yeah, it's just today it's CGI and everything. Um, it, it makes things easier, but at the same time, the reality is kind of gone. Yeah. Uh, I would say our third guest was probably the most entertaining, Mark Marshall. He was the one you were discussing, that he's, he's the one who worked for Amblin, correct? Yes, yes. And he worked on, he's worked on a lot of movies besides Goonies. Uh, worked on American Graffiti, uh, more American Graffiti, which is a sequel. He worked on Empire Strikes Back, Rare's Lost Ark, The Color Purple, Back to the Future, American Tale... Empire of the Sun, and Last Crusade. After that, he started working for Richard Donner and started working on all of his movies. And did he did he write Free Willy? I can't remember. No, he um, he did not. The writer for Free Willy was, in fact, uh, the Goonies' dad. The Goonies' dad uh, only appeared on a couple of scenes, and he spent most of the rest of his day kind of just wandering up and down the beach. And that's where he got the idea of this kid who saves this killer whale, which then gets uh, rewritten to a degree with uh, script-wise into the story that Free Willy became. Oh, okay, yeah. For some reason, I got confused halfway through. I was like, wait, you worked on it, or did you write it? And, you know, sometimes they can be producer and writer. Thank you for clearing that up for me. There is a lot of information, so I'm basically just your backup here on uh, fact-checking. So I think the best part that he had to reveal was the fact that uh, after filming was done, Richard Donner said, man, I'm just burnt out on these kids. I love them individually, but together they are a nightmare. I, I'm going nuts. Like, uh, So he goes, the minute this production is done, which went on forever, um, he was going to go on vacation to his home in Hawaii, but they arranged to have all the kids come 
and the Fratellis to come to Hawaii and be at his house before he showed up. So, just so well, to, yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's back up a little bit here because there's a little more to the story. So he would actually have the kids come over on a regular basis, and that's kind of, you know, he'd take care of them and watch them and what have you. Well, the funny thing, though, was that on the last day of production, uh, the character Chunk actually came up with, uh, with a suitcase that says Hawaii or bust and looks the guy straight in the eye and says, so when are we going to Maui? He laughs and kind of shrugs it off. Um, the, uh, the talker then says that it was such a funny thing, he grabbed him and brought him to Spielberg and redid the bit again. And Spielberg said, you know what? Uh, come talk to me after, uh, after everyone leaves. And Spielberg's like, yeah, we're going to get everybody tickets for Maui. This is, this is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, they were there when he shows up. He sees, as he's coming up the hill, that his living room is filled with kids arguing over what to watch on TV. And he kind of just drops his bag, drops his jaw, and it's like, oh, God. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> and then uh, he turns around and sees the Fratellis coming up from the beach, and they're arguing the whole way, just like the Fratellis would. And he just he just broke down in laughter. He couldn't believe something like that would happen. But the cool part was they showed us the video of them coming up in the bus. And you get to kind of see what it's like behind the scenes of how they uh, you know interacted. And uh, one of the things that... Uh, I thought was interesting is the fact that he revealed that Joey Pantiolano, Joey Pants, and Robert David did not like each other whatsoever. Did that surprise you at all? That, that honestly, that uh, that was amazing. I mean, I, I'm so used to hearing backlash immediately through social media that uh, you don't really hear these things. And back in the day with professionals, where it's like, you know, they hate each other's guts. They're both New Yorkers. There are different types of New Yorkers, and they're like, really? I, I never, I would have never guessed it. But you know, like information wasn't as uh, available back then. Yeah, and I think the biggest sticking point was the fact that Robert David was always singing opera, which Joey Pants could not stand. To the point where they started arguing over it and getting really like kind of like you know ag- aggravated with each other, so they started pulling pranks. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, if I remember correctly, didn't Joy Pants was the first one that got pranked because they super glued his trailer door shut. Oh yeah. Was he in it or out of it? I can't. Remember. He was out of it and had to climb through the window to get back in. That's right. So he decided to get back at him by having uh, Robert Davies' trailer removed from the set and replaced with a burned out trailer. And as he goes to break. He just stops. He's like, oh, my God, what happened? And Joey Pants is like, I don't know. What a disaster. <laughs> like, completely innocent. And then it, it would actually go on set, too. There was a thing where, I don't even remember this in the movie, but uh, where, where uh, Data, he has his little chomping teeth shoot out and hit Joey Pants in the balls. Yeah. Kind of hang there. I don't remember Robert Dovey going up to the teeth trying to pull him off with his sword. He's actually prodding his groin or whatever. And when he goes, oh, that's a real reaction. And that was brought on because of an earlier scene where Data's uh, mechanisms all kind of explode. Uh, the Joey, Joey Pants um, says something and gets slapped by the mom. And realizing that they could retake the uh, takes over and over again would constantly mess up his lines. So the other guy would constantly get slapped by the mom, who was very bad at fake slapping. Yeah, Robert W. man, his face apparently was severely swollen. Around the 11th take, Richard Donner <laughs> caught on to what was going on. He was like, you know what, I think we've got enough now. I would love to see the bloopers from this over and over and over as it's building and Joy Pants is just kind of smiling to himself. <laughs> but you see in that video as they're headed to Hawaii, you can see those two are going at it. You know? mm-hmm. 
like they were in the same uh, you know structure, but you can tell they really didn't like each other very much. Oh man, I think the irony is the fact that Robert is making fun of Joey being bald. Mm-hmm. He really digs in deep. But then, like ten years later, Robert's wearing a toupee because all his f- hair fell out. So it's like oh, almost <laughs> sweet, like justice. <laughs> am, I, am I missing any other stories with him? I feel like I am. Um, no, that was that was pretty much their full gamut right there. It's just their animosities and what have you. After uh, the video played, I got to see them on the bus just kind of being themselves and, you know, just discreetly just ripping on each other. Uh, they moved on to the next guy, and I kind of liked his stories too. Yeah, Chunk, I'll say this real quick. Uh, even in his downtime, Chunk is still highly entertaining. In this video, mm-hmm. he's killing it. He mastered a southern accent at, like, age 12, <laughs> <laughs> Real man can't even like Robert can't even possibly get down. Uh, so we have Kurt Hansen. He played Mr. Perkins. Uh, he was next. Uh, he was. The, you know what's weird is before we went in, we were standing outside, and he is right there. He is within feet of us. We could have shaken his hand, anything, and I froze. And then when we got inside, I was like, "Why didn't we do anything? Why did you freeze?" Um, honestly, uh, I just, I used to work in the comic industry and I'd see a lot of actors and writers and, you know, artists and what have you. And it's one thing to ask questions and converse with them behind a table and at a panel. But, uh, when they're kind of just walking the street, I, I feel it's more respectable just to let them be. Yeah, see, I didn't know how to react because there was a thing where when he was first walking up and I pointed him out, I was like, oh, he's just going to go inside. That's pretty cool. I won't yell anything or do anything like that. But then all of a sudden he's just kind of standing there as we're going in and and, uh, in fact, I think he tore one of our tickets. Did he tear your ticket? <laughs> no, he didn't tear mine. Oh, he was tearing somebody's ticket, and I was like, oh, uh, what, what do I say here? What do I say? And I just did, I froze. I want to be like, but I forgot his name, too. I'm just like, Kurt, Kurt something. Oh, my God, what is it? Uh, I couldn't get, like, I got amnesia to, like, oh, God, what is even his character's name? Ah! And uh, so I just I just kept going on. But I think I think you were going to thank him for coming in, but you also were like, nah, I'm just going to show Yeah, it, I, I'm just very nonchalant. Like, I could have, but at the end of it, it just came down to that point of he wasn't really walking the line, meeting and greeting people. He was kind of just scoping out the uh, the clientele base, yeah. just probably just seeing if any of the other actors were trying to sneak in and not be noticed or something. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's me. Like, I've been around enough people to where it's like, I'm just not going to bother them unless they come talk to me or if they're actively talking to people. It's just, in my opinion, kind of rude. Yeah, it's it's an awkward situation if they're not there presenting themselves. It's like asking yeah. someone to help you find something when they're clocked out. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I know you work here, but I, and I know you're not off the clock because you're wearing normal clothes, but you, can you show me where this is? It feels like that. Like, dude, yeah. back off. Uh, so, Kurt Hansen, he's actually, he's an actor, but he was a police officer first, which surprised me. Yeah, yeah. And he did that for a long time, and then he would kind of just, like, intersperse, like, stage acting. Mm-hmm. He hasn't actually done a lot. I was looking up IMDb, and there's a handful of stuff that he did for, like, cable and TV. Of course, yeah. Goonies being the most significant thing that he is, but he is a Portland actor, so not a lot of stuff happens up here. But I thought it was pretty cool how he was saying how he auditioned everything, and that, uh, he was kind of nervous, and he was going to go play golf with Steven Spielberg, but he had no idea how to play golf. The whole thing was kind of awkward. And he was originally uh, auditioning for The Dad, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I mean, not that it made much of a difference. I think they both get the same amount of screen time. But uh, for the most part, he just kind of comes down to how he auditioned. But he revealed a scene that I've never even heard of, the monkey scene. Yeah, yeah. I had heard of the octopus scene that he was talking about. Which, uh, if if you only seen the movie like on the original uh, VHS or TV, there's a sequence at the end of Goonies, right before they escape the cave, 
uh, there is an octopus that comes up and grabs them, they fight it or whatever, and it goes off. It looks incredibly silly, and it doesn't really work. But he said, oh, well, there's a string in the movie that never really gets connected. It's where they're talking about the apes escaping from the zoo, and then later the apes show up at the golf course, and they get into the golf cart and take off. <laughs> that is bananas. I can't imagine how that would have sold, because that sounds, I mean, this is a, a crazy movie, but that seems stupid. Uh, there probably was a chain of events that made it make sense because the entire thing was that they're going to tear down the goondock to make it a golf course. So I imagine it was kind of that realization of the character of, you know, why is he making this golf course? For what reason? For what cause? I mean, other than just to make a golf course and be a, you know, a jerk. Yeah. And so to give a proper, you know, framing for the villain, they might have just done that. But uh, in the end, they just said, oh, it's a kid's movie. A villain's a villain. Let's just shorten it and cut it out. Yeah, plus the apes. I don't even know if they would. He said the costumes were from older movies. Like, I think it was from Greystoke. So that yeah. Means, like, three years before this, they might have been kind of rotting and falling apart by then. I don't know how well monkey costumes hold up. <laughs> Uh, the one thing he does say, though, is the final sequence where they're shooting, you know, the kids coming back, you know, uh, no penman, no penman, no right, you know, and they find the jewels or whatever, and the ship takes off. Uh, they had to shoot part of it, uh, was it Cannon Beach, and the fog just would not go away. It was, like, there for, like, five days, and they had to rush back in order to finish film. No, it was in L.A., wasn't it? It was It was in California. It was, uh, I want to say it was, like, Chesapeake or... It, it was uh, it was it was California Bay that the, for some reason the fog would just not leave and until the very last day where they had to do it triple fast and uh, basically squeeze in as much as they could all at the one time. Uh, I think actually I want to say it was Bodega Bay. Bodega Bay, that's what it was. Bodega Bay, yes. And uh, which is the setting for birds, if you didn't know. Um, and then yeah, they had to rush back in order to meet filming requirements. You know, the kids they they have only a certain amount of hours to film, so they had to rush right up here and then finish it like right for the sun. He says literally in the scene, the sun is in different angles. You can see it going up and then coming back down. <laughs> and this is before, of course, digital where they could fix stuff like that. Uh, I don't remember anything else from Kurt Hansen. He just kind of talks about working with the kids in the film. He was actually the quickest of the bunch, which is ironic since he's the only one who really knew how to tell a story efficiently. Yeah, he, sadly, uh, he seemed to be the least amount of... Uh, like Even flat out said he was spent very little time on set. He was juggling that in his actual like real work, and so he would go back and forth. So most of his stories was all just kind of personal. This is, how, this is what I did, how I broke into the scene. It was really interesting just to hear how he went from point A to point C, how he ended up up being in the movies from just being a you know a, a police officer out in the middle of nowhere to you know some movies and tv shots here and there the, our final guest i have to admit this is the one where the show was going for two hours now um i don't want to say it was age it's possible the stunt work maybe have done some damage or maybe he's just not a public speaker but randall widener uh he was sloth stuntman uh, it was rough getting through that. Were you kind of like, oh boy? It was it was dragging on at that point. He had some interesting things and a lot of like technical fun things that he was talking about, but uh, I was definitely like fading in and out during half of it. The segues um, were crazy. It was just like he, literally the first words out of his mouth. He goes, "After Vietnam, hold on, hold on. Uh, how many of you people are from the story?" And then he would jump to another thing. He, it was very hard for him to finish a thought. Because he would mm -hmm. randomly throw in movies and start talking about movies that no one had ever heard of. Not that that's a horrible thing, but at the same time, you're like, w what about the thing you were just talking about? Oh, okay, whatever. 
I mean, there was even a portion where he had a slideshow going on behind him, and he got off so so off from his slideshow that they had to back it up like four slides so he can talk about the thing that passed by. Uh, Michael and I were looking at the slideshow, and Michael says, is that Michael Jackson? And I look up, I was like, holy crap, that's Michael Jackson. It wasn't until like 20 minutes later, I'm like, yeah, I'm talking about Michael, Michael Jackson now. The slideshow projection was like, oh crap, click, 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 click. Yeah, I was just like, oh, they're just throwing up random slides. I didn't realize that they were connected to what he was saying because it was so, like, random. But still, yeah. it was pretty cool that he sit there talking about how he was over in Europe and he started off as a stuntman in Spaghetti Westerns and he says there's some of the worst movies you've ever seen which it depends on how you line up if you like uh, Spaghetti Westerns you'll probably like them a little bit more than the average American audience and he said he did a ton of stunts here I have to look him up to see what else he was in he talks a little bit about working with Burt Reynolds and uh, you know some of the stuff that they did there was crazy and uh, for the most part though he discussed being in Goonies and the one major stunt that he did was the one where he had to jump from whatever that that ledge to the sail and then slide down with a knife. And uh, that sounds like a crazy stunt, even with uh, wires. That just sounds like horrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he was talking about the fact that there had been two other sail cutting stunts before that, and he had talked about how they accomplished it. And, you know, the fact that uh, the first one was a camera trick where he'd uh, look over and then just jump maybe a foot down, and then they'd run a knife through a sail vertically and, or horizontally, and then just, you know, make it look like it's vertical. And then something along pretty similar to the next uh, sail cut. This was the first time that they did an actual sail cut from 60 feet up in the air, uh, jumping across using a descending machine to go down. That was also timed to be fast at the top and slow down so that he'd come at a steady thunk at the bottom. Uh-huh. So like, it was neat hearing about that and neat hearing about, you know, all the uh, high-profile people coming to watch that particular stunt and he's just, you know, jittering in his jeans the entire time. And, uh, yeah, just the, the way that they changed it over the years, too, with Velcro, I was like, how did you put Velcro in it and make it pop apart? I imagine that would have been really difficult. And uh, the, the, the way that he fell was uh, descending, like a descending line, which is uh, something they developed in the... Uh, uh, early 80s, he was talking about Sharky's machine is I think the first time that they ever designed that. So a lot yeah. of it was very technical. But he did tell the story, which we we agreed afterwards might have been a horrible thing, was the fact that Michael Jackson was desperate to get a movie made about Peter Pan, which yeah. I had never even heard of until now. Uh, he wanted Spielberg to direct it. He wanted to be the star of it. And he kept coming to set. Goonies, like he would be there for like four days a week, bugging and bugging and bugging and just hanging out with the kids. And I would blame this for Corey Feldman's obsession with Michael Jackson. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine him having a whole lot of experience with him up until this point when all of a sudden, you know, the King of Pop would come on a regular basis. And, you know, this is before any of the allegations against him for what he may or may not have done. So, like, even the cast and crew were all like, yeah, bring your kids, it'll be fun. All yeah. right. Oh, the years have changed things, haven't they? Mm-hmm. But I, we were discussing, like, I think five years after Goonies came out, <clears throat> Corey Feldman was on a talk show with his band The Truth Movement, completely decked to the nines as Michael Jackson. I still don't understand. Even if Michael Jackson was, like, his hero, then no one stepped in going, dude, I don't think this is legal. Your hair looks the same. You're wearing the same clothes. I think, in fact, he even wore the glove. Mm-hmm. That, that was a disturbing chunk of his life right there. <laughs> Um, I want I want to look at this real quick. Uh, Randall Widener, his first credit was The Goonies, even though he did Spaghetti Westerns. I guess maybe the rules don't work the same back then with giving credits. Um, maybe IMDb just doesn't list uh, Italian or Spanish movies. I mean, yeah, maybe. Uh, he did Lethal Weapon. He did uh, License to Drive. 
Leviathan, and his last movie was Nowhere to Run. And uh, oddly enough, it says his stunt double is John Matusak, but John Matusak is not in Nowhere to Run. I've, I've seen that movie a ton of times. Weird. All right, so that was the end of the end of the panel. And I gotta tell you, after the two hours was over with, my legs were stiff, and I was just like, "Where am I? I'm amnesia." Um, and that's when we headed over to the '80s con. And we both scored some sweet swag. Uh, how do you say that word? Swag? Swag? Swag, swag. I don't know. It depends on who you are. I feel like a fool that I had to ask you that. What, yeah. what, what was uh, you scored? Um, I found some caricatures that I thought were kind of fun, and so I grabbed them. They're a bunch of uh, over-emotional uh, pop icons, and so I picked up a bunch of those while I was there. And uh, for the most part, it was kind of it was borderline junk con. There was stuff there that oh, was like close to being like a flea market or guys selling bootlegs for way over the price. <laughs> I've ever seen some dudes he's selling those bootlegs for like twenty bucks a piece. Or 30 bucks, and I'm like, have you ever heard of YouTube? Uh, there's no reason to charge these kind of prices for something you don't own. <laughs> and uh, I ended up uh, picking up a couple t-shirts, and I picked up an uh, imitation, not an imitation, a replica of the skeleton key they use in Goonies, and the doubloon. And uh, they were pretty actually affordable. They were made out of resin, so it looks like they'll hold up, but they look almost exactly the same, which is pretty awesome. Uh, but at the very end, while you were still shopping for those uh, pictures, he made those on the spot, didn't he? Um, no, those were prints. He was working on other ones on the spot, but uh, he was just setting the setting and casting. Oh, okay. Uh, while you were doing that, I was wandering around, and I ran into Jack Johnson, uh, who is a set designer, uh, basically a production designer as well, and I was like, at first, I thought it was just some dude that was a fan, you know, they do their own fan art about Goonies, and he's talking to someone, so he's not really paying attention to me, like, filtering through his stuff, and I look at the list, and I see the movies he's involved with, and slowly it dawns me, I'm touching actual production designs and uh, i was like oh my god i don't have like really oily fingers but i started talking to him because of it's ridiculous i got so excited of all the movies that he was involved in huge movies i got excited about the shadow and so did you when i told you oh yeah uh, I'm, I'm a huge comic book nerd so it was like wait he was working on the shadow oh my goodness i still can't believe that i sat there just like bluntly like going yeah the shadow's not very good but uh and I look at his face as I say that, and I go, but the movie, the movie looks beautiful. It, it, the production design on it is wonderful, and he lights up. And I think I talked to him for about 20 minutes about all sorts of movies, like Perfect Storm, and, you know, uh, he was talking about Legend, and how much the movie had changed during the beginning and end, like, just constant studio uh, screwing around with it. But you came along, and we're sitting there talking about it. It's just cool that he was, like, when I pitched him the idea of coming on the show, he just like, oh, oh, okay, let's, uh, let's chit-chat about this, instead of, like, oh, yeah, sure, here's my number, you know, Thing, ignore me um and i think the last thing that we did was we went to the goonies house am i right yes we uh we passed by the kindergarten cop school and walked right up to the goonie place yeah and the school is uh i haven't seen kindergarten cop in forever but it looked pretty much the same i don't think anything's really changed and yeah, no, it was uh, it was dead on the, the front of the school i didn't really see much but uh i mean like see much in the in this in the movie but uh, when we walked around the corner and saw the playground i'm like yep that's the playground right there kindergarten cop playground yeah it's funny it's the 15th anniversary of uh kindergarten cop and they're not going to do a thing about that. That's a weird thing. Goonies, I get, but the fact that they're ignoring, like, the fact that, you know, Short Circuit, you know, that was a huge hit. Mm -hmm. Cop was a huge hit, and they connect to a lot of families. I guess it doesn't hang around as much as Goonies does. Uh -huh. It'd be cool if next year they did a 30th anniversary of Short Circuit. I'd be running around with the Johnny Five is Alive shirt. <laughs> oh, you want 
Who's yeah, going? Like, you, like you wouldn't believe, absolutely. Uh, so we, we walked up to the house. Now here's the thing, if you ever visit Astoria, you can't actually park anywhere near the house. You have to park like a couple blocks away and walk. Uh, it's set up in such a way that it's just a little corner of a neighborhood off on a hill. And it even has signs over that says, no parking here, you know, this is a private property. So you have to walk there, and it's just right there on a big cliff. You can see the whole waterfront and part of the city, and it was actually a really nice view. But uh, it must be weird for the people who bought that house and then just be like, well, we didn't know it was going to be so popular. I was like, really? Did you ever see the movie? <laughs> Do you know anything about the popularity of it at all? What did you think of the house? Um, I thought it was kind of neat. Like The fact that uh, they decided to relatively keep the coloring as is. I don't know if there's a clause to keep the coloring, but uh, I walked up there thinking, like, oh yeah, they're going to like have like a nice big giant blue house, and they're going to just redecorate it all they want because they're going to be so out of touch with it, they just don't care anymore. Yeah. I was like, no, no, they kept the coloring the same, you know. Uh, though, like, you, may, you had mentioned the fact that they had indoor tours, and also mentioned the fact that people live there now, so, I mean, really, it's not going to look like the inside of the no, Goonies house. the craziest like, thing. It doesn't look like the way it did on the, in fact, I'm not even sure if that's 100% the house or it was a set but uh, I'm still confused data flies over from that house over to theirs so that obviously wasn't the house right I don't think so I mean I'd have to take a closer look at the uh, data's house it's a situation where yes I looked at the Goonies house on a regular basis when I watched the series I didn't really pay attention to data's house I mean I just kind of took it for granted that blue overheads is what he did yeah and they, um, knowing movie magic they probably just filmed another house that had the appropriate look and then just stopped it as he flew by and then just flipped the camera over and just had him like hooked up to something where he slid right into the house that's the weird thing about movies sometimes the more you know it's it actually kind of destroys the magic of a movie so i'm, I'm not sure i want to know <laughs> uh other than that you know uh it was nice they have you know they have a donation box and and most people usually ask for donations these days for everything but this is something le legitimate you know they're letting you be on their property stare at their house take pictures so, you know, I, we, we donated. If you do visit the house, seriously, just throw in a buck. It's, uh, it's kind of a nuisance for everybody to be up their driveway and, uh, you know, taking pictures and being in the way. It's, it's, it's uh, a good thing to donate a little bit to them. I mean, it, we're, we're literally eating up their time. They're going to have visitors there for the entire weekend. Uh, they can't leave their house. They can't go in and out of their house. They can't really drive around up there. It's like, you know, you deserve at least a dollar, two dollars for your time. I respect you for that. I'm kind of surprised the city hasn't just bought the house. You know, bought that little chunk of land with the two houses or whatever and just turn it into a tourist thing. Like the Goonies gift shop will be across the street and then you can just tour the house. Make it exactly the same as the movie and you make tons of money. I think you were mentioning earlier when we were there the fact that the town up until about five, six years ago was basically just a dead town. And now that they've embraced the Goonies so deeply, there's so much Goonie, you know, noise going on there, which I don't know if that's just specifically for the weekend or if they actually just have full on like Goonie stuff going on all year round. But if that's the case, then yeah, you know, the city buying that house might be worth it in comparison to, uh, you know, their current outlets. Yeah, the one thing, uh, I've been there for a few times before. This is the first time you have ever been there, right? Yeah. Uh, normally, it's just a, a very cool, hip town. A lot of people, I think, from Portland go there on vacation because it's something that's really rare. It's a town that's barely changed in the last hundred years. And I think it's being embraced by the artist community and stuff like that. But uh, besides the Goonies, you know, they do have other movies that they had, like I was saying before. They could just make a big thing of that all year long and even have a film festival. You know, have something there that you could go to. You could basically take the Hollywood district of Portland and, you know, it's like that. Just take it out of there and put it on the coast. And I think it's a really awesome time. Every time I go, I fall in love with it a little bit more. 
but yes, they do have Goonies shirts usually year-round sales. You usually see stuff in the windows because people come all the time. It is an annual event, but of course, every five years, it, it's a little bit bigger than normal. Uh, I was disappointed that it was only uh, a few people involved with the, you know, the crew and then Chunk. We, I was kind of bummed. Uh, Twenty uh, five years ago, we had like Sean Astin, Corey Feldman, uh, Joy Pants, uh, Richard Donner. You know, it, it seemed like they were more into it five years ago, which is weird. Is twenty five anniversary, twenty fifth year bigger? I mean, really that much bigger than a uh, thirtieth? Uh, I don't know. Like, I always assume that uh, it's like five, ten, twenty five, fifty. You know, it kind of, it's kind of a like a, a growth. Seventy fifth anniversary. I think those are the big ones that people pay most attention to. Like no one ever talks about like the sixtieth anniversary or sixty fifth anniversary. It would have been nice if Corey Feldman showed up. I can't imagine he's that busy, so I don't know. <laughs> Sean Astin, maybe. Richard Donner, yeah. But yeah, Corey Feldman, I was like, really? They couldn't have just paid for his flight up and just sign autographs? That would have been cool. Thinking we might have had to suffer his band, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say this. Our last thing that we did as we were headed out of town was we stopped at the Ark, which is an arcade slash comic book store, which has slowly become more arcade than video or comic book store. Dragon's Lair is still the hardest game I've ever played. Which is why that they set the machine to free play the entire time. Yeah, it's I thought that was kind of funny. Like they actually have a sign that says this game is so hard that it's just it's just free play. Just free play, do it all you want, because otherwise it's just going to eat your money. Yeah, it seems like a pretty laid back place, and yet at the same time, uh, I think almost every single game was working except for the ones they they had just put in the skee ball. Uh, yeah. I've been to so many retro arcade places that have destroyed my quarters, or they don't work at all. I mean, even Ground Control, considered one of the greatest uh, retro places around, is still one of those places where like, damn it, another quarter that pinball game just sucked it up that and you have to molest a lot of people because it's so small in there yeah. Um, I guess that's about it I have to say on the trip. Is there anything I missed that you want to discuss? Um, honestly, I mean, since this is kind of talking about the area and what have you, the, the drive was actually very nice. Uh, taking the 101 up, you pass through uh, Seaside, and I happened to go through around maybe 11, 12 o'clock in the afternoon uh, slash morning, and um, you know that early morning fog going through was a really nice breeze for uh, for a hot summer day. Uh, it was very enjoyable up until driving back into the uh, Beaverton Portland area where I was basically just baking in my car. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I heard a heat wave's coming through. It's actually really cold here in Lincoln City. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, very, very quaint feeling, not uh, overly obnoxious, uh, big city feel. So if you're looking for that small town feel, driving up that coast through Seaside to Astoria is, uh, is a pretty good drive. Yeah, I'll say this. Uh, I used to be in love with Seaside, but I went there, and uh, they have some cool events, but I went there, and it's like... The people who have no... Oh, God, I feel like a jerk for saying this, but there's like kind of like the people who don't respect the town. You ever, you ever lived in a tourist town where it's fine during the off-season, but once the tourists come in, they destroy the city? Yeah. And they're like, no respect. We're just here for the weekend. Screw you guys. <laughs> Seaside, it feels a lot like that. It's just like waves and waves of tourists that come just to buy cheap candy, look at the beach, and destroy stuff. Whereas Astoria, the people who come in who know the town really embrace it and keep it... I mean... Uh, the town was clean. It was really clean, and uh, I never felt, even during this huge event, that I was claustrophobic or, you know, just too many people. Yeah, I was kind of impressed that they had uh, public trash bins on the way to the Goonies house. Like, the city actually put public trash bins out there. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Like, they know they're a tourist town. They know people are going to be walking up here. We don't want trash on the ground. Put the trash bin. Yeah, and that, and there's bathrooms everywhere. I hate being in a place like, oh, God, i got to go right now. What are I, you know, like, you're trying to read a map. I don't know where this is. 